Thursday morning to you, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. It's Thursday, which means tomorrow's Friday, which means next Saturday. What, sleep? Yes. Saturday's the day of sleep. Some people think Sunday's the day of rest, but Saturday's the day of actually sleeping. Sunday I rest, Saturday I sleep. Ah, good day, everybody. You're welcome for another. Are you ready for another hour of just plain crazy good entertainment? Crazy good. Not even information today. Just entertainment. There is information coming, but first, in the entertainment news of the day, it put a smile on all of our faces. McClocky and James had a very special moment last night. Yeah, we did. You and McClocky. There's a business arrangement. Went to where some building. Contracts are being signed. The Mazer building on campus, and you tripped and fell onto one knee. Yeah, very conveniently. What happened? Well, I yesterday was the day, and... Yesterday was the day that you... I'm engaged. We are engaged. You and McConkey. Melancholy, yeah. McConkey. Malakadong. How'd it go? You're ma- you're engaged, dude. Yeah, this, this is fantastic. Is, this, this is, is really for good. marriage. Yeah, this is the okay. real deal. So in, not, yeah. we're getting married in May. <gasps> May what? May 2nd. Oh, you were so close to my birthday. So close. <laughs> May 8th, you could have done. Why that date? Um, because it's right after finals and, yep. Have you checked for availability? Yes. Everything... <laughs> Ironically, everything's already planned. Oh. Yeah. Do you, <laughs> not, you do you not remember? I actually caught him planning it. Oh, okay. I snuck up behind him, looked on his computer. You're always afraid to do that, by the way. But James, I was thinking, what's he what? – because he's so interested in what he was looking at. And this kind of like shifty look at yeah, my eyes. Yeah, he looked weird and shifty. And um, But he was just looking at Target's – I don't know if it was Target, but it was basically a bridal registry. Okay. So I just grabbed that man card right out of his pocket. It was it was a groomo registry. What was it? Yeah, it was. Dude, you're getting in, you're getting married. This is a big deal. Yeah, and it's ironic that it's right after finals because the decision is so final. Yeah, that's like my last final. That is your. <laughs> that is like the beginning of your last final. Yeah, this yeah. is great news. And and what did McConkey say? Yes. She said yes. <laughs> yeah, she did. Yes, yeah, she did. Was that a shock? I'll tell you what. I was. I was uh, really stressing out because I mean we'd already planned a lot of the wedding, so I mean I guess it wasn't wasn't a uh, there wasn't much danger of her saying no. Right. But uh, I was I was afraid that I hadn't done well enough on the proposal, and so she's going to say like maybe try again or yeah. <laughs> something like, like that. Uh, so. Nope. Nope. Nope, not even close. Like I will say yes, but uh, I, I thought I was again. going to be there. I thought I thought you were going to invite me to be there. Well, my people called your people, and mm. they said that it wasn't going to work out. So you have people. 
Yeah, I you, do. You had a marriage seminar. Did I have a yeah, marriage seminar? Yeah, it was yeah. some really big event. So you couldn't be was there. Was this last for... night? Yeah. Yeah, last night I didn't have a oh. seminar. Oh wait, what? Okay. Really? No. Wow. Oh, that's. I had right. a basketball game, but you know I could have missed it. Oh, okay. Weird. That is strange. That's just strange that my people didn't know that. Yeah, you'd think that your people would have known that. You know, what did you say exactly? No, I, I'd have to talk to my people. Oh, okay. To see, to see yeah, what, see what, what happened. Yeah. Um, well, well, congratulations. Thank you. We're proud of you. At and long last. Well done, Maklana Vich. Congratulations to her as well. That's neat. We're going to a wedding, apparently. And we'll see. We haven't been in- and you're invited. And you're all invited. Are we invited? You're all invited. And all of our listeners, you're invited, <sighs> too. This is big. We're going to film it. We're going to video it, and we're going pu- to put it on my, my channel, on my website. I mean, not my website, on my Twitter tweet twonk. <laughs> we're going to twonk it. Okay. We'll, we'll do, like, YouTube. Yeah, it's YouTube. Those are free accounts that, also. Yeah, I hear that's a lot better than twonk. So. Yeah, and then you can link it twonk up. Twonk never really took off. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those startups you hear about. You know, uh, congrats. That's cool. That's really good news. That's, that's the headline of today. Now, there's more headlines. Yeah. What you got Not as positive. Not Surprisingly, as positive as there was other news yesterday. There, there, there was other news, news. but a lot of it's just kind of negative. Justice Department ready to sue Ferguson cops. I know. About that's that? a big deal. Uh, Missouri Police Department, uh, Ferguson Police to be sued if it does not rectify racially bias in their police their policies and tactics, according to a report from CNN. Uh, and uh, what Eric Holder, the attorney general, wants to do this before he uh, steps out of office here in a few weeks. So it's basically a threat to sue. Yeah. So here, we here's will the problem. You Fix if you it, don't correct it. Or else. Yes. Yeah. But see, St. Louis is having a lot of trouble. They just got that video in the St. Louis Police Department of the cops beating up a man and then turning off the video. Right. Hey, yeah. turn that off. Hey, oh, is that on? Oh, sorry, <laughs> turn that off. And then they ended up not charging the guy. Right. Yeah, because the video was The on. video was there. It's kind of obvious. Yeah. So they're in trouble. I mean, I, that's good. Correct it, right? So if, if Ferguson won't correct it, then great. Yeah, there's a lot of opinions on all sides, but yeah. there is a systemic, a systemic issue there. Yeah, there's something Cincinnati going on. has a similar issue, and they're, they're under federal yeah. type I mean, oversight. We, somebody right has to change it. Yeah. Right. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that you can always get perfect representation. I don't know if that can happen. No, but when you have trends of stuff like this yeah. happening, yeah, fix well, it. And you know, because the people were so upset, they live with it every day, and so it's real. Just do something, for well, heaven's sake. And one, one piece of news about the Ferguson Police Department, though, the kind of the going more towards the hope, is that uh, they, they just barely released uh, – they're, they're starting a program with this gun attachment called the Alternative. Ooh. That what it is, it's a plastic attachment that goes on the pistol ah. that when they fire it, the the bullet fuses oh. with the, the like a ping pong sized plastic. Oh, and then, so you just get hit with a ball. Yeah. So Ow. it hurts. They it said hurts. It's, it but sounds it's better than death. Yeah. They said it feels like a world, uh, 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 major league pitcher throwing a baseball. Oh, no. Hitting your chest with a hammer. But yeah. <laughs> at least it's not death. So Yeah. That's, but, so again, you get bruised, but you're okay. Yeah, okay, you don't so die. Okay, so you want to be tased, or do you want uh, less lethal? Yeah, we'll get you with the less <laughs> lethal. We'll take a less lethal we'll for the alternative. Le- I'm a That's fan crazy. of the beanbag shotgun. That's just me. Just, <laughs> it sounds kind of fun. Why? How did you? How did you become a fan? <laughs> I just, you know, the idea of shooting a beanbag out of a shotgun okay. just seems interesting. Just it's like, kind of like a Nerf sort of. You guys of. used to play 
beanbag toss. Right. Well, <laughs> I always house. threw all kinds of stuff at people. It though. sounds like fun until you get hit by it. Right. Oh, oh beanbag. That's right. cool. Get hit by it's it. serious business. Uh, 100 people possibly exposed to a superbug oh, at UCLA. I, know. I heard that. Um, there, it's a drug-resistant superbug virus called CRE. So UCLA's Ronald Reagan Medical Center. I didn't know it was yeah. called that, but it is. Um, contaminated medical equipment. You got to clean the equipment. Right. Ah. Uh. Something, See, it was some procedure, like for gallstones, right? Uh, it was like a, it was yeah, a test. Some, it was a test of some kind, and the equipment, they're, they're saying there's seven UCLA patients already, they know of it, that are infected, two deaths likely, and there might be a hundred more people out there floating around. With that a superbug that medicines can't touch. Yes, because we're resistant yeah. to antibiotics after So while. you go in for a procedure, because you may have gallstones or pancreatitis or whatever, and then all of a sudden... You've got the superbug. And it says... Oh, that's tragic. CRE, the superbug, 40 to 50% of cases, if the infection reaches the bloodstream, it's lethal. Ugh. That's Ebola. Yeah. And it's just... And it's in our hospital. And, it, and that's in a major UCLA hospital. I mean, that's like... Yeah, that's It's not scary. a county health clinic somewhere. Not, it's, no, no. Yeah, this is it's a, a big, big deal. deal. Big hospital. Big deal. What do you think about Barack? I mean, that... You heard about his words, right? Yes. What do you think? I I don't know. He he doesn't want to say anything extremism. Yeah, right. I think he's trying to get away from labels because you're dealing with people who are using a religion to justify their actions, yeah. but it's not the religion that's, that's right. the problem. It's these people. You don't want to offend a billion whatever people right? because we're not going to war with a billion people. We're going to war with ISIS. So he tries not to offend a billion yeah. people, and someone's always mad at him, no matter what he says. Yeah, I, I, you know what? He's walking a fine line, but it's also important, right? You don't want to offend everyone on earth, and yet you, all, you don't want to validate ISIS by really connecting them to being um, protectors of Islam, because they're not. They're destroying Islam. And yet he's stuck. So even, even the Democrats aren't liking it. Like, no. Come on. Yeah. They want they want him to sit. They're having this uh, three day summit yep. on t- on extremism in in D.C. and they wanted him to come out and say that the root of the problem is the religion and the people in the religion yeah, need no. to do something about it. But I don't think that's what the White House thinks. No. They're, they're they're trying no. to keep these separate because yeah. they really are. And I think part of that's the deal, right? They the the um, the the leaders. Of all of the uh, of the mosques, of all of these like kind of religious leaders, need to start stepping up, and they need to be as angry as everyone else in the world is angry about ISIS, and they right. need to vocalize it. And yet, we also need to not hate Islam, right? And not act like we hate Islam, and not act like this. He it's, got, it's the extremism we have to focus on, not necessarily Islam. Obama got in trouble, or not in trouble, but criticized the other day because when he was talking about the 21 Egyptians yeah. who were killed over the weekend, they made an announcement, right? Right. They, they said, it, this is bad, we do, you know, we, mm-hmm. all this, and he didn't mention they were Christians. Yeah. And people thought that was a big deal. Right. It's like, he said Egyptian citizens who were killed. But mention they're Christians. Yeah, but here it's, we go. do we need to mention their religion every time someone dies? Well, it's more see, the fact that, they, that what they're doing to just normal, I guess, civilians in this yeah. whole situation, and and people want to get hung up on which religion everybody is, and I don't know yeah. if that's really the well. And I think that's the problem because you're you're also going to war, so you don't go to war talking about who you're not going to war with, right? At some point, you just have to go to war with the people you're going to war with, right? But I, it's nuanced, and he's trying to be nuanced. 
And, you know, CNN had a big thing on, is it nuance or nonsense? I think the reality is he's trying to fight a bigger war. He might be trying to talk to the people of Indonesia so that we don't make more radical uh, Islamists in Indonesia. And he's trying to talk to everyone. And yet at some point you can't please everyone. You just got to get on your horse and just say charge and start cracking heads. Anyway, <laughs> that sounded like a sports moment right there. Uh, we're going to take a break, my friends. When we come back, Dan Reynolds is on the phone with us. Dan is um, he's a past warden of the Oklahoma State Penitentiary. We, you know, we've done a lot of shows recently about the prison system and uh, you know moving some prisons here in Utah. But also, I, I want to know. I want to get on the inside and get the scoop of what really is going on inside these prisons. Are we truly reforming? Dan Reynolds, former warden of Oklahoma Department of Corrections, will be with us over 30 years of correctional experience. We're going to pick his brain, see how that, uh, see what we learn about uh, our prison system. This is the Matt Townsend Show, back right after this break. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We've got a great show for you today. Today we're going to be talking with Dan Reynolds. In fact, uh, he's on the line right now. And Dan is um, a past warden at the Oklahoma Department of Corrections with over 30 years of correctional experience. Dan earned a master's degree with honors in the Criminal Justice Administration and Management from University of Central Oklahoma. He's received many distinguished positions and awards, such as Oklahoma's candidate for Warden of the Year for the North American Association of Wardens and Superintendents. And uh, we, what we've been doing on the show over the last uh, week or so is talking kind of every different angle about um, how we how we take people to prison, how we try to reform them in prison, if it's working. And we thought, you know what, we probably need to talk to somebody that's been on the inside from the correctional point of view. And Dan's name came up. Dan Reynolds, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Glad to be with you. It's a great honor to have you on, and we appreciate your service. I mean, I know it's it's a, I get to go visit our Utah correctional facilities uh, every once in a while. And the idea of going to work every day in a prison, it's its pretty daunting. It's a hard job. It's certainly challenging, and every day is a new day. And you uh, did it 30 years, day. right? Uh, yes, I did 30, about 32 years uh, with Oklahoma Department of Corrections. Did you? And um, one of the things, Dan, we wanted to ask you is, I mean, when, when you think about it, like day in, day out, what is a normal day for a warden? Well, What's that like? Well, I don't know if there is a normal day as a warden, <laughs> uh, to be frank with you, because every day is a, a new day. You certainly have uh, schedules, and you know it's a state agency, uh, and so there's a lot of bureaucracy. Uh, a lot of it is uh, when I was a warden at Oklahoma State Penitentiary, uh, my time was always um, crucial and very challenging to try to manage your time. And at times, I, I felt like it actually took uh, maybe two wardens to actually run that facility on a day-to-day basis. Hmm. Uh, 
on one hand, you really needed a warden to do the public relations with the with the community, attend uh, meetings uh, away from the facility, and then another warden would actually be needed to actually run uh, the day-to-day operations. And, and when the warden is out doing the public relations and attending meetings and doing everything else that's required, they typically have deputy wardens. Uh, I had two deputy wardens and the chief of security that kind of took care of the day-to-day uh, operations. Hmm. But, uh, I, many- I always felt like my time was kind of uh, spread out. And, uh, of course, I lived on the facility grounds there. And and so, uh, uh, you know, you, I basically had to be married to the job in order to do justice to it, I felt like. So you raised your family on the prison grounds? Uh, yes. Uh, actually, I... Uh, we were actually required to to live on uh, on facility grounds, and and uh, so uh, I had a wife and uh, uh, two children uh, that we raised on uh, wow. state grounds. Yeah, I mean, h- how many? Kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean that's got to be interesting. These kids, you know, playing ball, uh, chasing right. their ball up to the fence line. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, what? What? How many? Uh, how many? Um, prisoners were in the prison when you were the warden? We had around uh, 1,400 inmates. Uh, wow. During my tenure there, uh, I was warden uh, about three years, and our population actually doubled uh, while, while I was there. Wow. And uh, Oklahoma really faced a major overcrowding problem, and we still do today. Oklahoma ranks third in the nation as uh, the highest incarceration rate for males, and we rank number one in the nation for the incarceration rate for females. Yeah. Now, now you're the prison you you were warden where where you were warden. There was an actual um, there. It was the Oklahoma State Penitentiary, and and that's been in the news historically because there was a riot there, right? Uh, yes, uh, there was a major riot in 1973, uh, July 27th, 1973. And, there were four inmates killed. One died of natural causes, and uh, there were some correctional officers uh, severely injured. Some of them never did recover from their injuries. Hmm. But, but that was a, uh, a pretty large ordeal. Uh, I was only—I wasn't actually working for the Department of Corrections at that time. I was only sixteen years old. So you saw you—you you heard about it though. You saw the helicopters. Uh, you saw smoke coming from the burning buildings. Absolutely. I was uh, a friend of mine that uh, I always said when I turned 16, got my driver's license, we were going to go to to a nearby lake in eastern Oklahoma. And uh, so I had just got my driver's license, and me and my buddy, we were driving to the lake for a couple of weeks. And we turned on the radio, and we heard of a prison ride in progress at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary in McAllister. Hmm. And so I asked my buddy, I said, uh, have you ever seen a ride? And he goes, no. I said, I said, you want to drive down there and and see what's going on? He said, sure. And so it was only 30 minutes uh, from where we were going anyway. And so we just detoured to McAllister. Really didn't know where the penitentiary was, but we did see the smoke rising from the burning buildings. And we were able to just kind of follow the smoke. And I turned down the side street, and I drove right up next to the fence uh, on the east side of the prison there. And uh, we could see a bunch of inmates lined up along the fence, and we saw a hollow patrol trooper outside the fence with a bullhorn. 
Mm. It looked like he was calling out names, like he was trying to account for for who he had in that uh, particular area. And then we saw helicopters flying around. Wow. We saw a National Guardsman on top of the walls with, uh, with their machine guns. Uh, we saw a National Guardsman actually marching in step inside the prison, marching marching to their post. And so for a couple of 16-year-old kids, that was pretty enlightening to us. You bet. Did you ever think you'd be the? Did you ever think you'd get into corrections after that? I mean, was that ever in your mind? No, not really. I uh, the first time uh, I was really introduced to prisons, I was I was probably in eighth grade, and I had to do a book report, and I went to the library and I found a book on prisons, and uh, and so I, I did the book report, and then ever since then I was kind of interested in in corrections, but I, I had no idea I would ever work in corrections. I had no interest in working in corrections. Hmm. My goal, and uh, I was more career-bound in medicine, I wanted to be a, a physician, and that's where I kind of headed at an early age. And, and then when the riot broke out, that kind of ignited the, you know, my interest. But even at that point in time, I had no knowledge I yeah. ever worked for the Department of Corrections uh, seven years later. And then actually be be the warden of state penitentiary when uh, uh, after seeing the seventy three right there. Yeah, let's let's do this again. We're talking here with uh, Dan Reynolds, and Dan uh, spent thirty plus years with the Oklahoma Department of Corrections. Was the warden at uh, the Oklahoma uh, what was it? The Oklahoma prison and uh, Oklahoma State Penitentiary. What we want to do when we come back is is talk more to Dan. And, he, you know, he's authored many books. Uh, one of the books is called Caged Wisdom, Learning to See Through the Bars. Uh, another one is On the Other Side of the Bars, Lessons Learned as a Prison Warden and Administrator. We're going to come back and continue this discussion with Dan. Also want to find out about Reformation. Did he did he see real change in, in these prisoners? And, and pick his brain a little bit more on um, other lessons that we need to learn as we think about putting more and more people into these prisons and penitentiaries. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. We'll be right back right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody. It's 34 after the hour here at the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about, uh, you know, prisons, the impact that a state penitentiary has on, you know, the people inside it, not just the inmates, my friends. There's a lot of employees that work in the prison as well, and uh, we're talking to one a wonderful man named Dan Reynolds, who um, was a warden with the Oklahoma Department of Corrections for over 30 years of uh, correctional experience. He has a master's degree with honors and um, has written quite a few books. One of his books is called Caged Wisdom, Learning to See Through the Bars. Another one is On the Other Side of the Bars, Lessons Learned as a Prison Warden and Administrator. We've been picking his brain just about what really goes on inside a prison. Dan, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here. I mean, here we, we, we sit, we put these people in 
prison. I mean, we hear many stories, by the way, about, uh, you know, you know, contention between police departments and um, communities, as we heard in Ferguson, as we see in um, other places, even St. Louis as well, just recently. Inside, I, I assume, you know, and in all the prison movies we're watching, there there seems to be kind of gangs, there seems to be bands, groups of people. I mean, who's really running those? Who's running the ship, Dan? I mean, you are the warden. You're doing everything you can, but there's still a whole other culture going on inside, right? Absolutely. Um, the prison culture and environment uh, has its own language. It has its own economy. Uh, it has its own hierarchy. It has its own politics. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's totally a different world. And everything what you have in prison is pretty similar to what you have on the outside. Inside the prisons, you've got psychologists, you've got teachers, you've got doctors. Right. It's a it's a it's a nurses. it's a commu- it's a city it, within exactly. a within a fence. Exactly. And the warden's the mayor. And, yeah. Uh, and, and the mayor has to control the city and operate the city uh, with a limited budget. Uh, and of course, the clientele uh, is is a little bit unique. Uh, yeah. They're they're all convicted felons, and sometimes you know it's uh, people say you're safer in prison because you know who you're dealing with. That's true, though, out huh? In, yeah. When when you're out in society, you really don't know who who you're dealing with. So, did did you get to a point where, um, I mean, I've seen it where I mean, there's some there's some people. You can tell that just had a bad break, made stupid mistakes. Others really were more challenged. They had other mental health issues. So you're dealing with that as well. Did you, Tell me what you learned just about the people, about inmates overall. Okay, that's an excellent question. There's a lot of good people in prison that just made bad mistakes, that got, got in the wrong crowd, uh, got, got convicted. And then there's other people to the extreme that are violent, that yeah. are sociopaths. Dangerous. That are, yes, very dangerous. And those people never uh, should be released from prisons. Uh, uh, those are the type of people that prisons were, were made for. And then you've got another uh, component in the inmate population, which is uh, what you had mentioned, the, the mentally ill. Yeah. And uh, today's prisons actually are now... Uh, the new mental health hospitals. Uh, years ago, when they used to uh, incarcerate or uh, confine the mentally ill to state institutions, uh, the prisons uh, didn't didn't see a large mental ill population. That's until, true, huh? They'd be hospitalized, right. yeah. Exactly. And then when psychotropic drugs uh, were popular and uh, the sentiment was that uh, those people would be better served with uh, community mental health facilities. And so so they decided to close down the mental hospitals and have the community mental health uh, work with these people and try to get them into a successful transition back into society and rehab with the use of psychotropic medications. But the community mental health centers were not really prepared for the volume of people that actually came out. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a result of that, a lot of those uh, offenders never made it to the mental health facilities for, for their medication. They got off their medication. A lot of them became homeless. 
Uh, of them became unstable. Uh, you know, they got uh, crossways with the law, uh, had law enforcement contact, and as a result, a lot of the judges really didn't know what to do with them, and so they they ended up putting them in prisons. Hmm. And now the prisons are trying to deal with the uh, high numbers of those that are severely uh, mentally ill. And it has just really skyrocketed. And now we're seeing mental health uh, prisons uh, devoted just to deal with the mentally ill. Oh, A wow. lot of facilities have mentally ill uh, units yeah. where they've got one unit uh, basically uh, secluded to deal with the mentally ill. And then they've got a complement of, of uh, psychiatrists uh, and psychologists and uh, mental health uh, professionals trying to deal with those uh, inmates, but 99% of those people are, are eventually going to go back out into society. Yeah, and, and we don't know, yeah, we don't know how to necessarily, it, it, that just tells us, Dan, how complicated this is. So it's not just criminals, and they're not just evil, and some are mentally ill, and some are evil, dangerous, scary people that should never come out, and some are addicted to drugs. I, I mean, I assume when, when some of the um, the sentencing laws changed. That I and mean, what's interesting is leg- the legislature changes a law, but you're the warden that has to then somehow balance all of these conditions, and because you have more more and more prisoners coming in for different types of offenses, and yet uh, you know one side may not know what the other side's even doing. Right, and you had mentioned the uh, the drug problem. You know, uh, American prisons would not be overcrowded if it's not for the addiction issues that we're facing today. Right. Uh, the, the drug offenses, uh, probably 60, I know in Oklahoma, 60, about 60% of our inmates are done time for nonviolent crimes. And a large portion of those are drug-related uh, crimes. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, it's it's been uh, proposed uh, years back uh, that, you know, what would happen if we took that money that, we're currently spending to incarcerate drug offenders and take that money and invest in treatment alternatives rather than putting them in prison, mm-hmm. trying to provide them treatment. And and for those that really want treatment, they can certainly benefit from it. But a lot of the prisons today, I, I know in Oklahoma about um, our former director, Justin Jones, had, had made a comment that about 10 percent of those inmates that are actually needing some kind of treatment don't get it because of the lack of funding yeah. and the lack of resources to carry that out. So without proper funding, then prisons become a warehouse. Yeah. And, uh, well, and uh, a, weir- a weird warehouse, right? Uh, Crazy warehouse, because then you right. have the mentally ill with the, the seriously pathologically sick criminal with the drug addict that just is there because they have an addiction. And then we right. kind of, we stir that pot, and then we. It, I, so, are we reforming? I mean, do prisons and do penitentiaries actually are, are they are they working well enough as reforming tools? You know, the, the, the correctional staff are a unique group of people. Uh, you find, for the most part, those people, um, especially those in specialized areas that that are there to. To provide help to offenders, that that they have a true calling to be there, mm-hmm. and they are passionate about what they do. And there is changes going on every day in, in our prison systems. The public 
uh, they don't hear about the success stories. Right. Uh, they only hear those that commit other crimes, violent crimes, uh, what have you. But but good things are happening every day. And if those offenders t- take the program seriously, then they can certainly benefit from it. You know, the drug courts, uh, we got drug courts now, uh, and that was devised to try to serve as a mechanism to utilize treatment rather than incarceration. And and for those people that uh, that take advantage of those services, they can be very productive. And uh, uh, you don't really see in the higher securities, you don't see a lot of programs because their focus is more security, mm-hmm. uh, protecting society, keeping the inmates from killing each other, hurting staff, or escaping. Where you really see the success in programming is when they get to the lower uh, security units, the minimum in the community-based where inmates yeah. are, are preparing, preparing to be discharged, to go back into society. And those inmates face enormous amount of challenges. Uh, employment, uh, they have to find uh, uh, an apartment. They have to have funds for a deposit. they got to turn on their utilities. They have a record. Uh, it's hard to get a job exactly. with a record. Exactly, exactly. And so those, and a lot of them uh, owe restitution mm-hmm. or they owe child support, and so they're coming out, you know, at a really disadvantage. And now George Bush, when he was president, he signed a bill called the Reentry Bill, and it was a mechanism to try to work with offenders to uh, allow for a smooth and successful transition back into society. And we do that with many ways, by trying to find them employment, uh, try to line up support groups, uh, trying to match up mental health facilities for those that need medication, uh, to take them to to where they need to go and show them this is where you go to get your medication. Mm. And we try to develop a support group around that offender prior to that's great. Getting out so that there's a support group. Without it, those inmates typically uh, revert back to what they know best, right? And that is survival. That's right. In in order to survive, in in order to eat, they have to go back to the skill that they have mastered, and that skill is typically illegal. Yeah, criminal behavior, it's robbery. Yeah, exactly. So if if Dan if if we if we um what do we do so kind of give us a, we have about a minute minute and a half left give us what would you do so if we had a magic wand and you could knowing what you know having been on the inside and now kind of free from it but also you know you're a good Christian man you believe that people are good inherently good to some degree and you know some struggle what would you do with the magic wand what could we do to create better change. Well, I think, you know, since we incarcerate uh, probably no, more nonviolent offenders than violent offenders, I think prisons were developed and designed to house the most dangerous uh, criminals um, that need to be isolated to pro- uh, protect society. I think we need to focus on those that uh, uh, that can be a successful citizen uh, and contribute to society and and a lot of those were drug-related offenses. I would, I would uh, be a proponent of taking those funds that we typically use for incarceration and develop treatment programs for those that that uh, that need it. Yeah, and uh, that's 
what I would do. Drug courts are doing it. Now we yeah. have mental uh, mental health courts now to divert mentally ill from going to prisons. I would uh, support uh, the drug courts, the specialized courts, the mentally ill courts, uh, and try to deal and focus more of our funding and energy with the nonviolent offenders and try to try to utilize other alternatives to incarceration and use incarceration as a last resort. No, I love it. And I, I, I think really that's it's it's a more I think, uh, you know, it's it's a tiered approach and yet it's going to address the issues, you know, where they really are. So I, I appreciate that, Dan. I appreciate your insight as well. It's been great having you on the show and, and just learning, learning, um, learning what it's like on the inside. Interesting stuff. Dan Reynolds, go check out uh, go check out his book. Go check out his works. He really, I mean, to write a book, he's got about five or six different books. In fact, one that uh, we'll have to call him back to talk about are the most hilarious, bizarre, and unusual correctional stories ever told. I can only imagine uh, some of the crazy, funny things that go on in prison as well. We're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, continue some of these discussions as well as some more news up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. It's 50 minutes after the hour. Dan was a cool guy. Can you imagine spending 30 years in prison? 30 years anywhere. I mean, but in prison when but, you yeah. can leave. But right. then, you know what's weird is how you have to go home on the prison grounds. Like, I would love to just drive away from the prison and stay away. Did you ask him? I was out of the room. Did yeah. you ask him if it was like the Shawshank movie? Was it just like that? I didn't ask him that. Right. That's a great question. Did people tunnel out with spoons or however they did it? You know, I, we didn't get into any of that. That would have been right. fun stuff. Like, did anyone try to escape? Yeah, that was kind of, I. you know, I, I was boring. The escapes you hear about are really kind of boring because it's like someone left a door open. Yeah. There's no elaborate plot and plans. It's just sort right. of, eh. Someone made a mistake. It's not like, yeah, you didn't like chisel out with a chopstick. It's not Superman with Lex Luthor and his helicopter into the prison. No, and they, no not that. No. You know, uh, I live by the prison. Is it a good neighbor? Uh, yeah. So one day. My dad always said, he goes, if the prisoners escape, they want to get away from the prison. Yeah, they're not coming to so my house. So if you live near the prison, you're probably all right. We, um, I, we were looking for on the sex offender list. And in my neighborhood, right when we moved in, we put our zip code in, and there was about 1,800 sex offenders. At the prison? I, no, they didn't oh. say at the prison. In, the, in my neighborhood, I'm like, holy cow. You are surrounded. Yeah. This like, what is do we the just, worst neighborhood what ever. What did we just do? Man, these Why wasn't people, that reflected in the price? What's yeah. going on? And that was weird, huh? <laughs> yeah, I got ripped off. She got a discount at least. That's one reason we're trying to move the prison. I can't have that many sex offenders and have my reason. But was that what it was? was yeah, the, it was okay. a prison. Like they said there's 1,800, but they didn't show their houses. I can't or... remember the number. It was really high. It was high. My, right. when my wife and I are like, that's weird because Stacy, they only had like two. Yeah. We had like 800. <laughs> yeah, we have 800. Man. How did that happen? It must be the apartments. <laughs> it's always that. <laughs> We're like, it must be the apartments. That, that same people say that in my neighborhood too. When, the when there's a problem, it's the apartments. It's, it's those apartment be the apartments. dwellers. Anyway, hey, um, 
So you got some more news for us. Yes. Other, heard- other than the fact that James and McIntyre engaged. Wow. Yeah. He kind of sold his own story there Did you there see how well. he came to life? <laughs> he hasn't pushed a button like, Wait, I have a all drop. day. I have a drop for that. But now that we're talking about his engagement to McIntyre, he's pushing buttons all over the place now. Is it better when you don't know the outcome of yeah. the question? Yeah. Because I knew. Yeah. It was just a matter of... Did you know that she'd oh, say yeah. yes? Absolutely. We we talked about the ring and what kind of ring she wanted. And oh, yeah. We, we had a meeting that we discussed our budgets, mm-hmm. how much money we make, how much money yeah. we actually have going out. Can we exist did away say, from our parents? Did you say so So how we much... We did it at a fondue yeah. restaurant. Did you really? Yeah. How Did you say, like, so, so how much can you contribute to the ring? No. That was all me. <laughs> yeah, because that would be cheap. The uh, My experience interning for the Olympics paid for my ring. Really? One month with the Olympics paid for a ring. Wow. Yeah. It's a big ring, too. Not really. Huge. It's, uh, it's adequate, as she says, which I said is not a positive way of describing the ring, calling it adequate. Adequate, yeah. yeah. It's kind eh, of, eh. I mean, it's not bad. It's average. Yeah. It's, it's not. It's serviceable. It, it, I mean, it gets the job done. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. It, it's an industrial diamond. It could work on a rig drilling for oil. But it's functional. I mean, but I'll wear it on my finger. So, my, I, so I found this. What would you find? A Pew Research study. Yeah. Stay-at-home dads. Mm-hmm. Which you were. I was. For a little while. Not by choice, but by you circumstance. You were forced at home dad. Stay at number of dads who chose to stay home and take care of their children and families have quadrupled over the past 25 years. Wow. When you just make the choice, we're going to do it this way. 25 years, it's quadrupled. And so a study last year found stay-at-home dads account for more than 16% of at-home caretakers. With more than 20% of wives now out-earning their husband, that trend is growing. That's fantastic. You know what? See, that's equality. Yes. I would love to be a stay-at-home dad. And a, uh, a separate Boston College survey found a majority of working men wish they could switch places with their stay-at-home wives if it was financially feasible. Really? How? What percentage? A majority. A majority. So over 50. You know what's amazing about that? See, I'm at a stage where I would love to switch roles and I would stay home with the kids. I mean, all of our children go to school all day, but I'm willing to do it. <laughs> they're, they're gone until about three or four. Yeah. I, could, I can, I can bite the bullet. I'm willing to do that. We'll do it. <laughs> I feel like this is one of those freaky Friday situations. They're like, yeah, I could, I could do that. I could stay home. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of people would say they want to. Yeah, it's hard. Until they actually get there. Yeah, no, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't have the patience for it, really. And my my children are better served with their mother being home than their father. I mean, that sounds – and I'm not even generalizing it. My wife is better with my kids than I would be. My wife's always like, you need to color with your kid. You need to, to do this and do that. I'm like, I just I, – it's not really my thought. I don't really yeah. think – I need to go grab this and we do a puzzle or, yeah. you know – but I mean, he could play video games. Absolutely, you could do what's Call of Duty. Right, he's okay with that. Bring me some ammo, son. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Dad. Reload this clip. Let's move on. You know. No, it's it's a matter of my my wife's constantly thinking about how can we better his, yeah, his fine motor skills yeah. and all kinds of different things. 
and I'm like, you know, he's yeah. playing with the toy. He looks okay. Yeah. You know, I and I don't go that far into it. Right. And she's constantly thinking about how are we going to develop our child. Well, that's a good wife. That's a good mom. Absolutely. Well, how is his uh, thumb eye coordination? We're working on it. Okay. I, I he has a controller that okay. I have that it doesn't. It's I, I cut the cable off it so he thinks it's yeah. uh, wireless. And oh, so great. when I'm sitting there playing, he's next to me and he's hammering the buttons. He's like, no, no, let me do it. Let me do it. You know, and it's not doing it. So he's like. delusional. But that's more because he, he wanted to reach over and grab my controller. No, yeah. don't touch that. I'm like, controller. I'm flying an airplane. Leave me alone. You know. Yeah. Daddy's got to land the helicopter. And then now the hard part now is he's starting to realize that it's not connected to anything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's not, he's like, wait a second. I want yours. Yeah. Then the next thing you know, he'll want a car. Also, there's an organization for stay-at-home dads. Really? I'm going to yeah, it's get, our the produce, NFL. get our producers on that see if we can get that guy to well, talk about this development. That would be because really this is a movement. This is changing. Yes. This is happening. And women are just as able, capable to but, make more money or just as much or more if correct. they want to. And the website talks about the stresses of all of a sudden you're a stay-at-home dad. Yeah. There's stay-at-home moms in the neighborhood. You don't get invited to those uh, book parties those or the clicky stay-at-home yeah. moms when i was the stay-at-home dad did you ever go there's to the all parties? kinds of little kid did you join a book club and, no nobody wants the dad in nobody the group. wants yeah that's sexist but if you network correctly there are other groups in the area if you want to be involved that way my thing is i don't want to be involved i wouldn't want to be involved i'm fine i'm fine i sat at home wear my sweats till five. Oh no you have to get up and get dressed Oh, do you? Yeah, just to keep a positive attitude. You have to act, act like you're going somewhere. You know what I would I'd wear like a moo-moo. I'd wear like a Homer Simpson moo-moo. <laughs> I really would. That's a great episode, Don't you by think? the way. Because then yes. you're covered up, but you just, you right. know, dad just needs to You have the relax. freedom <laughs> and the dignity. There you go. <laughs> oh, man. That's just pathetic. Well, that's cool. So we'll work on that for a future yeah. guest. In fact, James, just so you know, we're trying to keep all the options open for you now that you are engaged. But one option, you could be a stay-at-home dad. I'll talk to her about it. See what she thinks. Yeah. Yeah, tell her to step her game up Yeah. so you can stay home. Yeah. Ask Malayla <laughs> if she if she would be okay with that. The, if she would be okay being the primary breadwinner, but you would be the nurturer. Because you're very nurturing. You remember? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, that one Remember time. Remember that one time? Remember that one time you when nurtured, I nurtured somebody? Yep. Remember we had Mike was here and Mike had fallen and you went over and helped pick him up. And, and I like just rocked him yeah, a little you bit. Yeah, you brushed the dust off his knees. Yeah, that was, it was great. It was magical. Good times. Okay, we're out of here, folks. Hour number one in the box. Locked, loaded, UPS delivered. Um, when we come back, though, we're going to start a whole new hour. We're going to be talking about your kids and... Some of the trials, the troubles, the structure, or the the issues that they go through. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back after the break. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hour number two, six after the hour. Taking on a lot of uh, new subjects this next hour. We're going to be taking on um, the the interesting reality of a child is it's easy to be victimized. It's easy to be um, bullied. 
So we're going to be talking with an expert a little bit later about how you can help your teens understand patterns of victimization, you know, signs of their own emotions, their own relationships, and how not to become a victim thinking child, but instead to start noticing the patterns. We'll be talking to him a little bit later, Dr. Dennis Deaton will be joining us. We also have a really cool story. Bubba Palmore is going to be joining us a little bit later as well. He is basically a reformed gang member who uh, has cleaned up his life, and we wanted to hold him up as a, as a hero, really, I mean, as, as an example of change. Now, it's always hard, you know, gang members aren't always heroes, but we are trying to push change on this show and uh, give you some more insight behind the scenes so Bubba Palmore, he'll be up a little bit later in the show. But before we go any farther, we've got to check in. Are you still engaged, James? Yes. Uh, we had an engagement alert. James, uh, known for giving precious medals to his wonderful fiance, Makaka'aka, uh, gave her knives a few months ago. Yeah. So and today, yes, last night he gave her gold. Yeah, the first medal I gave her was a uh, uh, hardened steel. Stainless. This, yeah, yeah. This one is uh, is rose gold. So wow, rose gold. Yeah, it's a beautiful sounding gold. I like. Yeah, like tulip gold. Ah, tulip gold. A little yeah. too <laughs> purple. Infused. With Actually, metal. this was yeah. called strawberry gold. Ooh. So oh, I love strawberries. Yeah, with chocolate diamonds. <laughs> We're so proud of you, James. And you are still engaged. Yes. It hasn't uh, changed. This just in. Still engaged. Has she? Did she? Is she, is she listening to the show? I know she's a huge fan. Yeah, she's a huge fan. I don't know if she's listening though. Well, how would you not know? I thought she. Well, be... she hasn't said I'm listening to the show, so I haven't confirmed it yet. Why don't I give you? A, we're going to talk. I'll talk with Terry. Why don't you just go confirm that? Okay. <laughs> just make sure she's listening to the show. I just think it'd be important that she's listening. Not you know just because we're talking about her. Also, see if it's time for me to know her name yet. Okay, because well, I'm tired I'll... of making up names. <laughs> MacGruber, right? Is it MacGruber? It's MacGruber or McCormick. Ask her now that you're engaged if we could know her name. If not, I'm cool till waiting till the wedding day. Make stuff up. Okay, I'm, I'm totally willing to wait. Anyway, back to you, Terry. Jeb Bush held a foreign policy speech yesterday. I don't know. He was sitting on a stage there was some guy interviewing him. I think it was as kind of the format instead yeah. of him giving a formal speech. It was more of a it's discussion. Kind of a, yeah. Q&A. I, I saw several, like 15 uncomfortable moments during the Jeb Bush speech. <laughs> See, I didn't look this, at that. but This is saying it's real. Jeb is then running because he's now starting to broaden his wings from Florida governor. Right. He's trying to show that he's more than just a state he's governor. He's a diplomat. He's a, a diplomat. He's a statesman. That's great. Jeb Bush on Wednesday said ISIS has 200,000 fighters, which is as much as 10 times larger than the U.S. intelligence community estimates of the group. So Jeb apparently knows something that our intelligence agencies, they don't recognize. The U.S. estimates 20,000 to 31,000 men are fighting for ISIS across Iraq and Syria with a few hundred sympathizers in other countries. It's not clear whether Bush got his 200,000 figure. The only public estimate has come from a high Kurdish leader last November. So even the numbers right now are He's in probably flux. talking about the greater uh you know, the greater ISIS following. Okay. You, you know, so like, outside like for the example, fighters? Well, for example, there's what? How many people can fit into Cougar Stadium? Sixty five thousand, let's say. Sixty five thousand fighters for the Cougars. All right. But the greater Cougar family Okay. Hundred, so two hundred. You're, you're 500, talking about 000. the footprint. 
the footprint. As the marketing department likes to exactly. put it. Exactly. <laughs> so that's what, that's what Jeb is doing. He's speaking of the foot. Do you think he misspoke? I don't know. Was I, he I, meaning to say 20,000 and said 200,000? I have a hard time believing that you misspeak at the moment you're trying to go show you're a diplomat. Like when Mitt Romney made that bet, it was, you know, normal people, it was 10 bucks, and he said 10,000? Yeah. <laughs> and everyone went, what? Yeah, that was bad. That was bad. But see, I, I, I mean, think, he, could, he could have misspoke. He, he, I don't know. I bet he really has a number. I mean, because you do not want to blow that number. No. That's a big moment. At least not by 10 times. But, I mean, in a way, look, he's, he's broadening out. He's, he's semi the front, re- front runner now. Everyone's gunning for Bush. Gunning for him. Right. It's like a NASCAR race. So he's got to get his bona fides, as they say. And he might even have to, you know, expand, enlarge the numbers. Another report, internet ads. Yes. Apparently the results of what happens when, pe- when they're, they're uh, clicked on or not. Okay, like Google Google numbers. So when Google reports to my company that so many people have clicked through to your website, yes, you're saying that's a bunch of fakery. Well, the ads, not going to your website, but if, oh, the, the, if so you, people if clicking you, on if my you put ads up an ad saying, saying, "Hey, there's a marriage seminar, mm-hmm. it's here," and you put up it's a Google ad, fakery. They're saying the results of that could be very. Incorrect. I believe that. According to a recent study, between 88 and 98% of all Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Yahoo ad clicks are from what are called bots yeah. or automated computer programs that are uh. surfing the web. In December, Google made a similar announcement when it stated that its research has showed that 56% of ads served on the internet are never actually, as they call it, in view, which means... Before the page loads, these bots, these automated programs get in, click all the ads, and then they rotate before they see you. Yeah, before you see them. So I totally believe it. It's just because so that's you know who that should scare Google to death. That's that's their entire basis of their whole fortune. But the 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 numbers, and I remember hearing them somewhere on the show about the majority of internet activity is done by these bots. Yes. It's not a bunch of humans out there. I don't ever intentionally push ads. No. I mean, but my screen lights up all the time with them. So I don't know who's pushing them. Right. But uh, the interesting thing, too, is um, you can't – I've held seminars where we sold, we use Google ads, and I thought the seminar was full, and the only people that showed up were a bunch of bots. There you Just, go. I'm doing a workshop for a bunch of bots. <laughs> and actually, according to CNET, only 38 38- – Point five percent of internet usage is humans. That is so creepy. Sixty one point five is is bots, and just not other non human traffic. Well, and you know the creepers, just those creepy guys <laughs> that are and on the guys. dark side. So of the bots internet. and creepy guys. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. the web. That is scary. But Google better get that together because and, and that know. and that's a commerce situation totally. because people are going. They want if they want people to buy ads. For the internet, they have to be able to return right. numbers An that are ROI. real. So what I do to kind of get through that is I only do cost per acquisition. So I only pay if they're delivering a, a result. And I, even if I'm even okay paying, you know, for 500 bots for every cell, because a bot, I mean, they, I might be charged a click through is five or a nickel or a penny. I might be willing to pay 500 pennies if I can get a cell for $50. You know, makes sense. Have you ever used a selfie stick? Do you know what a selfie stick I've ne- is? I, I've never used one intentionally. Do you know what one is? I do. So it's the you put your camera on a stick and you take a selfie. You put your phone. They're making them now for iPads. Why? 
because people are trying to take no, pictures with their iPads. So now you see people holding a stick out with this massive iPad on the end of it. <laughs> it's ridiculous. See, that's why you have arms. Right. But they want to get it out there far enough so you can get the whole picture instead of the sort of fish-eyed warp thing. But if you're carrying your phone and your stick... Everyone knows you're just a, you're just into yourself. You're a selfie selfish. Went to Disneyland last summer. Yeah, people on the Dumbo ride have selfie their selfie stick. stick out as they're flying around. Well, and they decapitate another guy. <laughs> so this story: a growing number of museums, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, are banning selfie sticks. The concern yes. is that the sticks can do damage to the art, to the visitors. And to the users themselves. Right. It's destroying your self-worth if all you think you're about is your selfie. <laughs> your, your personal self-image is being ruined. No. They're it's scary about, to have a, a metal right. stick flying around. Because you're not, you're not worried about where it is. No. You're, you're, you're looking at your phone or But by the way, if you did happen to hit somebody on the Dumbo ride with your selfie stick and a camera attached, killer shot. Literally. That would be a fantastic shot. Pun intended. Pun totally intended. And there's the news. Killer shot. Well, that's good news. I mean, it's good news. There's more. We'll talk about- well, We've got a lot more. What people are giving up for Lent next hour. I, I heard. <laughs> I heard. This is good. Good stuff. Well done, Terry. So this is great. Look at how the show's running. James still engaged. Terry still doing the news. There you go. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll come back talking with Dr. Dennis Deaton, and he's going to be teaching us about how to start teaching our children about patterns of victimization, how to recognize them and make sure they don't become victims in their lives. Powerful stuff. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome back. It's 18 after the hour here on the Matt Townsend Show. And uh, remember, on the show, we want to kind of hit all aspects of life. So far today, we've even talked about prison life. We've talked about stay-at-home dads, uh, all in the news. We've talked about Jeb Bush going out on the, the limb as he's trying to improve his cred, his street cred, and his international street cred. Now I want to get to another topic uh, about our kids, our teenagers, really, and how to help them to not become, you know, a, a victim in life and how not to fall into a victim thinking mentality or behavior. Bullying has been in the limelight, you know, for quite a while now, and adults know when it's happening. You know, we can see it, but our kids don't always necessarily know what to look for. What if we could teach them to look for patterns of victimization and recognize them. Dr. Dennis Deaton is a pioneer uh, in, in the uh, movement to help teens understand how to take control of their own emotions, their own relationships, and their goals by recognizing their own victim thinking and behavior in their lives and, and taking ownership of it. Dr. Deaton is the co-founder and CEO of Cuma Learning Systems, Q-U-M-A, and uh, he's, he's, as a specialist, he's here to help us today to kind of work our way through this. Dr. Deaton, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, it's great to be with you, Matt. Great to be with you. And, I mean, really, bullying's a big deal, and there's a lot of people out there, you know, willing to take advantage of our children in a variety of different ways. And, and you, you kind of, you believe one of the keys to this 
is to is this concept of victimization. What what do you mean by that? Well, victim thinking is basically a mental state where you view yourself as powerless, with little or no ability to shape or the outcomes of your of your life and respond to change and challenge, and it leads to a sense of helplessness and resentment, which actually leads to a lot of um, unfavorable behaviors. A lot of your people who are studying the crime rates among teens see that it's a, a really a, a manifestation of victim thinking internally. Oh, that's interesting. It's true. I mean, even President Obama, just in this recent um, attack or you know, you know, conversation that he started about extremism. One of the things he's saying is we have a lot of people that are home. They don't have jobs. They they believe in Islam, and they start to feel like they're victimized, and they're going to go out and fight for Islam. So it might even be entering bigger scenarios like ISIS or even abuse or you know certain situations we hear in the news all the time. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the reasons why I'm so interested in really recruiting people to a movement to help us educate our teens to those things. I mean, we have got some scary things out there in the world. You mentioned ISIS. You've got Boko Haram. You've got North Korea. Uh, if you have any association with some of this, the studies on cyclical history, we're overdue for a major uh, global conflict. And I don't think our youth, uh, those who are going to lead us out of this and need to be uh, excellent problem solvers, are really prepared for it. And it's up to us to help them get there. And on top of that, just the day-to-day, you know, making it through, you know, the schoolyard, not getting bullied, not getting, you know, peer pressured into doing things we don't want to do. Absolutely. And when you're talking about bullying, the authorities in that area, and I don't consider myself a specific authority on that topic, but they will talk about the fact that the bullies will look for an insecure uh, someone who portrays an aura that they're, uh, you'll go to the weakest link sure. or their their targets. And that's one of the ways we can kind of bully-proof our, our youth by helping them have an ownership spirit, a, a set of thinking skills that includes a powerful view that you're more of a cause than an effect, hmm. that you actually can take control of your life, that you can set lofty goals. And they have, uh, you know, they just convey in their body language, in their own conduct something that uh, a bully will basically look for a weaker prey. I love that. And and plus, I guess in the end, too, if you have that sense that you're an ownership, that ownership spirit, you called it, that just automatically would start to impact your self-esteem. You'd stand Absolutely. taller. You'd address things. You, you're not a victim of your teacher. You still do your homework, even if you didn't know how. You'll figure yeah. it out. Yeah, every one of those small victories of facing a problem, overcoming it, does in fact build self-esteem. It, you know, it's not something awarded from the outside. This, uh, this tactic we've had in the past of, of giving a trophy to a team that never won a game just because we don't want them to feel like losers and have low self-esteem. That doesn't work. It, when you pay a price, face a fact, overcome an obstacle, that's where you get that confidence that hey, I can deal with life, and that's where that esteem is genuine and real and very powerful. So this really is about self-esteem, and and, and really it's patterns, I guess, is what you're teaching us. You call it recognizing the victim patterns. What what do those look like? What should should we be talking to our kids about, and and what is it that you specifically teach? Well, let me just, uh, you know, for the parents out there, I, you know, 
all of us have a tendency from time to time to go into victim thinking. People will say, well, you know, how can you really tell if somebody has victim thinking? My answer to that is take your right thumb, place it on their left wrist. If you feel a pulse, from time <laughs> to time they're in victim thinking. Yeah. In fact, I'm willing to admit to the whole world that it's a lot easier to teach my concepts than to live them. Yeah. The, uh, the key chronic uh, indicators is your, is your teen chronically unhappy. Hmm. Two, are they quick to blame others for that unhappiness? Situations and other people, it's their fault. Three, they're easily discouraged or disheartened. And then number four, they're overreactive to even minor setbacks. If you have those four indicators, then there's a lot of victim thinking dominating your your child's uh, mental processes. And, and oh, that I mean, those are you just that's just that's everybody, you know, not always chronically unhappy, but unhappy, but quick to blame everyone else. That's one of the things I try to do um, on the on this program is instead of having this be a show where we just are blaming everyone in the world, I want. I want us to start to recognize we're agents. We are agents of change in our own lives, and that's really what you're saying. We we are a cause versus an effect. We're Absolutely. here to create you're, a change. You're just really hitting the drum that we've been driving in the business world for the last 27 years. The hmm. ownership spirit has been training that's been given to corporations all across the globe, and it really is helping corporations uh, bolster their workforce so that the, the people in the workplace, subject to all these pressures and changes, mergers, acquisitions, and and so forth, they can deal with change and challenge and adversity with that proverbial grace under pressure. They can take it in stride. They can see it as opportunity, and it works out better for them in terms of their health and their well-being. It works out better for the corporation and the company, and it works out better for the the customers or clients that those those uh, businesses are serving. And that's actually the foundation upon which this course that we've dev- designed for youth called Own It, it rests. Like we have frequently after the seminars or even on the breaks, people coming up and say, how do I get this to my teenager? Yeah. I've got a son who's struggling with this. I've got a daughter that's, uh, that's working on that. And uh, about a year and a half ago, I was approached by a group of talented educators about taking the ownership spirit concepts that have been so successful in the business world and convert them into something that we can teach to young people. That has resulted in a groundbreaking course called Own It. It's no, nothing else like it on the market. It is an, not only video-saturated, it has kind of a choose-your-own-adventure quality to it where they interact with the videos, where they can make a choice, see how that plays out, come back yeah, and, uh, take and learn. Choice. So we present them with some real-world problem scenarios or, or obstacle issues, that teens face, and then let them uh, take make choices to see how that will play out. So it's a way that they don't just understand the concepts intellectually. They get a chance to see them visually mm-hmm. themselves in the driver's seat. So well, and I guess uh, that's I guess that can happen too. Just with like, like even like you're saying, parents maybe bringing it up, learning this, going through this together. Let them go. go let them go play on the tool and watch the videos, but then have discussions, create a, a kind of a robust discussion about the fact that they're an agent or the fact that they are an, have the ownership, and then just find example after example. Every news story has kind of some ownership slash victim, you know, you know, uh, story to it, right? Absolutely. And boy, you're just hitting the, 
a bullseye there that I, I want to amplify and add to, uh, Matt, because uh, you already pointed out that we all have some victim thinking from time to time. So what we like to have parents do is to take the own it course with the student, hmm. take their own course, because part of the, the great result and what makes this course so different is at the end of it, the participant, the student, whoever's taking the course, gets a personal profile that indicates their leadership skills, personality traits, uh, learning preferences, and so forth. It correlates with the P21 uh, career readiness skills. Educators out there in your uh, listening audience will know what that means. And they, you really get some insights about yourself. And so if the parents take the course and the students take the course, then at the end they can compare their profiles and they can get into some really interesting, meaningful conversations about their strengths and weaknesses, sharing back and forth. And it puts the parent in a position to comment on and guide further ownership thinking patterns without having to preach it. They, it they're yeah. essentially in a co-learner position, and it's very powerful for their conversation. I love it. I think, I think you know, every parent needs more tools, more guides to have these type of conversations. Let's take a break. We're talking with Dr. Dennis Deaton, who's the co-founder and CEO of Cuma Learning Systems, um, and this new program, Own It, which is to help empower our children, our youth, to understand that that they are an owner of their life, of their paradigms, of their relationships, of their emotions. Uh, you know, innovative stuff, folks. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to ask Dennis to, to share with us the content. What is What are some of the things we as parents could be teaching just right now uh, to help our children become more empowered? This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back after this break. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are currently talking to Dr. Deaton, and Dr. Dennis Deaton is the co-founder CEO of Cuma Learning Systems and has put together, after many, many years of teaching corporations and organizations about basically empowered, how to, how to have an empowered uh, employee who owns their own role in the organization um, he's now taking it and has created a really interesting program called Own It for teens so that these teens can start to make sure that they're not falling into a victim mentality and uh, and how to change that. They have a program that uh, you can go watch. It's video-saturated, lots of videos, and um, you can work with your children and start creating really powerful discussions and activities and practices to help them kind of work through not falling into the victim mindset. You can find this out, by the way, by going to his website, Cuma, Q-U-M-A dot net. I hope I'm saying that right. Dr. Dennis Deaton, welcome back to the show. Uh, Matt, yes, you're pronouncing it correctly. It's Cuma dot net. The, the website for the course that they'll want to go to is actually Own It U, like the, you, the letter okay. U yeah. University, ownitu.com. Ownitu.com, and and the parents can go there and 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 figure out. Uh, I mean, get into the program with their child, and, and you even suggest do the program with right. the child. I'll give you a coupon code right now that they can use to get a substantial discount on it. It's just when when they go and register, it's BYU Radio. 
Cool. Is a coupon code. It'll, and actually, it, it reduces the price to the point where the parent and the student can take the course uh, for a, a, the normal price of one one student. So. That's great. Great. And we appreciate that that code. Talk to us about the content. What, what specifically are you teaching? What do we teach our kids? And what can we just do as an average parent to make sure our, our kids can recognize the patterns? Okay. First of all, the, the course itself is in a rich gaming format to make it exciting and engaging and even fun for the students. And they, they earn 10 specific uh, badges that represent ownership or life success skills, if you will. Cool. So, and then they wind up with this portfolio at the other end, and it uh, teaches them how to overcome uh, ineffective mindsets. It helps them to set goals in a powerful way. It helps them to take responsibility for difficulties that, that they face and to be more responsible even for their success in school. So we also have a this available for schools and school districts. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that hopefully a little bit later on. But basically, in we're, we're trying to contrast and help them see that there's three main pillars that undergo ownership in life and that undergo, undergo victim thinking. The first uh, list, if I'm really an owner, I want to think in terms of that I am responsible. I'm responsible for who I am, what I say, how I act, who I become. I'm not an effect. I'm a cause. I don't control all the circumstances in life, but I absolutely do control how I respond to them. Second, I'm a steward. Uh, I have benefited all my life from the interactions and work of others. I have a, a, an obligation and responsibility to make the planet a better place and to give back. And then number three, I can do hard things. Hmm. And uh, meaning that we all can find the resources at first confronted with adversity. We may not know exactly how we're going to prog- progress, but if we start thinking that some way, somehow I'm going to find a way, our mind goes to work and we do find ways. Yeah. Now, if you contrast that with victim thinking, if you really think about it, there's just three corollaries to the three uh, principles I just mentioned. I'm responsible, I'm a steward, and I can do hard things. In victim thinking, it's number one, it's not my fault. <laughs> number two, it's all about me. Nobody cares about me. Why should I care about them? And number three, it's too big, too late, too hard. I can't do it. Huh. And so those are really what we're really driving at, if, if trying to replace that it's not my fault, it's all about me, and it's too big, too hard with the skills where we really can be more responsible for our outcomes. And then you asked uh, about a, a tool or something that the listeners could do right away. Right. I'm going to give you one of my favorites. Yeah. I call, it, I call it, how would you like it to look? If I have uh, somebody come up to me, this can be an employee, it can be a member of my family come up and say, I don't like me, 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 whatever <laughs> it is. The answer I want to give them is, well, how would you like it to look? There you go. They'll say, well, I don't know, but I certainly don't like me, 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 me. <laughs> then the answer is, well, why don't you give that a little bit of thought? Think about how you'd like it to look. And maybe come back then with not only how you'd like it to look, but maybe an idea or two of something that we could do together to start moving in that direction. As my children or a teen gets used to that phrasing, then you can start saying how, how you can uh, move forward and make it happen. That's powerful uh, because you're, you're teaching your child that they are responsible, that they do own this. And if you haven't even started thinking about it, then quit yapping. Go think about it. How would you like it to look? Yes, and that's what we need to do is just bring the student 
our, our teens, our, our youth, into the responsible, I'm responsible and I can figure it out equation. Too often today, we're abetting, we're uh, almost uh, enabling our, our, the helplessness and the victim thinking in our children. They have a problem, we solve it for them. We throw money at it, we go down and talk to the school teacher, we go chew the principal out, mm-hmm. we put all the responsibility uh, external. We don't really uh, help our children to see that they play a role in any scenario where it's not working. Uh, they may not be the major role, but they have some role, and they do have control over that. And if we can just uh, help uh, one another to slow down and see that we're more powerful and happier and successful if we're acting on something as opposed to picturing ourselves being acted upon by these circumstances. We're just happier, healthier people. Well, and and I love the idea, too, of being a steward. So you're not here to just use. You're not here to just receive everything in the world. Your your job is to return. Your job is to give back, to have some return on the investment in you. And I also can't, I can't get enough of this idea, I can do hard things. One of the things we discussed on the show quite a bit is resiliency and uh, the the need today to be more resilient, you know, life's going to happen. So when you get knocked over, you have to be able to be strong enough to to stand up and fight back. Um, and doing hard things is something that is a key to resiliency. You've got to be willing to go do the hard thing. Absolutely. And it's also where the joy in life really is. Uh, we've done surveys of retiring corporate warriors, and when we ask them what the highlights is, it's n- invariable that they'll go back and talk about their war stories, we call them, yeah. where they face something difficult, scary, and challenging, and they didn't wilt. They stood up, were part of the solution, and those are the things they look back with a glowing feeling in their heart. It's, it's, it's the thing that great lives are made out of. Uh, and one of the things I want to throw out here um, Matt, more than anything else, is I want your listeners to, to not only do this uh, for themselves and their, and their youth, I, I want them to join this movement. It started with Cuma uh, uh, Learning. We actually uh, created a spinoff company called Grand Key Education that is really behind the ownitu.com uh, website. And I'm asking people, if, you, if you're bloggers, if you have influence at a PTA, if you uh, have influence with a foundation, or you're a homeschooler, or you're a charter school. We need to get this message out. There are some scary things coming, and we're not preparing our youth for that. And I, I, I want people to become more aware that there's some tools and some uh, really a, a, a cutting edge uh, course now that gets that started. Own it. You is just the beginning. Uh, we're going to be adding other curriculum as we go along. And we, we just want to get people more aware that there's a, a need. That's the one, I think, hole in our educational system is we're really not teaching life skills, right. and personal responsibilities uh, extensively enough. It's interesting because, yeah, it's like it's kind of I always call it the character side. We don't we, we teach the the I guess the competency side. You know, you've got to do your math. You've got to do all of these competencies to get through school. But the character is the different. It's the different side of this. It's the it's the ownership. It's the responsibility. It's the looking out for the other. And yet, in reality, the, one of the main reasons we go to school is to grow the character, not just competency. Absolutely, we, and amen. We don't want him to come out of school. Man, that kid could do math, but he's sure a victim. Yeah, he's, he's sure you know not contributing to. You know, society is kind of a pain to be around. Yeah. 
Hey, Matt, I know you like to give giveaways. Yeah. So I just say that we're, we'll uh, send along to you, your station, three of uh, copies of my award-winning book, The Ownership Spirit, The One Grand Key That Changes Everything Else, was the 2009 USA Book News uh, top award winner in the business motivational category. We'll send you three of those. That'd be books. great. Then we'll give them out. Three free Own It You licenses. So if people call in, we'll give uh, them not just a coupon code, but a free access code to the course. So you can give away three books. That's and three perfect. Free licenses. To own it. That's great. No, send those in, and then we'll uh, we'll give those out over the air. We okay. we, we so appreciate it uh, again, Dennis. Really, uh, keep up the battle on the character front there. And uh, man, we need it. We need it big time. So we'll uh, we'll wait for those books, and then we'll put those out over the air. So everybody, be listening. Be listening. We'll uh, give you that great opportunity. We will take a break right now. When we come back. We've got a wonderful guest. I'm so excited for this next one. Bubba Palmore is going to be joining us. Uh, kind of the rags to character riches story. And um, been been very excited to share it with you. We'll take a break. When we come back, Bubba, he's in, uh, he'll be on the line with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In the house, Bubba Palmore. He, he's out of breath because he had to run all the way in. Kaylee led him up the stairs. I think she probably took you on a tour before she brought you in. I don't know where she, I don't know where she took you. Hey, uh, in the house here um, is uh, Bubba Palmore. And one of the things, you know, we've been talking about crime and the prisons and we talked to the warden earlier today and then early, we just recently got off the phone with Dr. Dennis Deaton talking about ownership um, with our children. We've got a great guest, former gang member, Bubba Palmore. And is that how you say your last name, Bubba? Yeah, Palmore. And Bubba is was born into a gang, basically, forced into a life full of darkness and violence, and yet he found his way out and he's he's changed. Yeah, you're a changed man. Yeah, that's so cool. Now, Bubba, how do you how are you born into a gang? So I think that basically, like my situation was very unique in the aspect of being born into a gang. I think most people who join a gang, they like have a friend who's a member of a gang, yeah. or they have like they they have a special interest in it from like a movie or something. Whereas with me, my father, my biological father, was a member of a gang. He was a gang man. Oh man! And my my uncle, all of his brothers yeah. were members of the same gang. And in his, what city? And and General. so th- this is in San Diego, California. Yeah. yeah. And so. And my his cousins were also members of the same gang, and then my stepfather was also a member of the same gang. So basically, all of my family, family were gang members. So as you would like see someone born into like anything, you know. Well, it's like being a, a BYU fan. <laughs> You're born into the BYU club, <laughs> but then you grow up in it. Everyone goes to BYU, but yours was a gang. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. You from the moment that you that I tasted life, like I just. That's like what I thought was like how life was. You know? uh, now, th- that has that has to impact you. 
Oh, yeah. So every minute as a kid, you see your dad and uncles coming home from some gang crime or event or whatever they had done. Yeah. And you are just watching this happen. So, yeah. So when I was like five years old, that was like my dad was murdered when I was three. And after that, I uh, that was when I would. Yeah, I'd see people come home and I'd see people getting jumped in our backyard and getting beat up and and all different kinds of things when I was that age. However, my mom, she was always very like a, a very good woman and she always she never wanted me to be a part of the yeah. gang life, but unfortunately I you know you took w- to it. Yeah, I took to it because I was what I'm a man and I as a young boy you see all these men and what they're doing yeah. and you think, "Oh, well that's what fighting for honor, fighting for colors." Yeah. yeah. But as I got older, um, my stepdad, he started being less involved in gang activity and my uncles had like went to jail and stuff you know and then Mm. it was just me so i wasn't really seeing anyone come home yeah to doing gang activity i was more like that was when i was a little kid you know my house getting shot up when i was like three years old but when i got when i turned like you know uh nine or ten i was going out there and i was you know, when I walked outside, all my friends now had become gang members. They were the and, gang. You yeah, were, so. you were now at nine a gang member. Yeah. This wasn't even about your parents anymore. Now no. it's you. Yeah, at nine it, it it transferred from like I knew what I was doing and I made the decision in my mind that this is me. Like I'm a gang member. Yeah, you I know? mean, dude, at nine I was throwing like dirt clods, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was know, making fun of girls on the way home from school, <laughs> and then they'd beat me up. Yeah. And you're in a gang. Yeah. It's crazy to think. I mean, like like when I you know, when I was nine, like I look at nine year olds now and I think, man, how was I already a gang member? But when I was nine, you know, that that was when I was already, you know, sending out hits yeah. to for to, to go take to go yeah, beat to, someone up or hurt to, somebody. Yeah. And and I was already on a path leading to destruction and jail. How, so so you went through high school. How old are you now, Bubba? So I'm twenty one now. 21. So this is 12 years ago. This isn't very long. Yeah, yeah. How did how do you climb out of that? So it took a while because I think the hardest thing like with the mentality I had from my childhood mm-hmm. is the pride. I had so much pride like I I wouldn't dare let anyone step to me or like get in my face. Don't look at me wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I was 9 years old, you know, I uh I I had an experience where, you know, this guy stepped to me and and I basically like told my friends like I want to kill this guy because I want to make sure that nobody steps to me, yeah. you know, and my friends were all with it and everything. And, and we got caught. And I think after that, I, I know that I, I realized, okay, this is not the life that I want. Yeah. And slowly, I mean, when you're growing up in that environment, people still, you know, would get in my face and I'd still get in a fight and those kind of things. But over time, I changed from being like a bully into like just self-defense and then eventually to being able to turn the other cheek. So, like, someone would come and get in my face and I wouldn't even do anything. Whereas when I was young, yeah. that would never – I'd never let that fly. How – that's amazing because really part of it was just reactive, huh? So as yeah. a nine-year-old, you're just reacting yeah. to your code. Yeah, because I'm, I'm taught that if anyone comes within, like, arm's length and they have a confrontation – like you punch them, like you, yeah. you don't there's, let there's them. The, you don't talk, yeah. you don't run, you, don't, you yeah. punch. So that's how it was for me growing up. Is when I was little, I was taught like how to how to protect myself from anyone that even had like a confrontation with me. That is cool, though. I mean, really, when you think about it, that's 
we can talk about, you know, creating healthy kids that can act responsible. But you you just kind of figured it out on your own. Was it just you and your mom? So no. So my mom, my mom set the most amazing example for me. Um, And, you know, I talked to her last night just about about this stuff. And and as a kid, I mean, my mom, she had me when she was 17 years old. Wow. Her her the father of her three kids just was murdered. Yeah. At what age? She was 20, probably 20, three years later. Yeah, somewhere around that age. And she she chose to go back to school, get a bachelor's degree. She works for UC Riverside. She's doing amazing things. And as a kid, like she didn't smoke, she didn't drink. She'd go running in the morning and do like all those stuff. And, uh, you know, I... Even though I didn't act after my mom as a kid, yeah. I never forgot that example. Um, as I would like go outside and I'd hang out with my friends, I always had in my mind like that my mom was like a really good person. Yeah. So after I got into fights and I'd beat someone up, I'd call my mom and I'd tell her what happened. And you know, she started to tell me like, "Hey, you know, you got to be careful," you know, and and all <laughs> all those kind of things, you know. But I, I have other brothers and. How, but, how did they turn out? So my brothers follow me, right? Do they? Yeah, yeah. So my my brothers are great young men. They uh, one's going into the navy right now, cool. and, and they all play sports, and yeah. they're really great young men. And and you know, another part of my decision not to be a gang member, you know, at a, at, a, at a later age was because I knew that my brothers would do what I do. So if I if I turn out to be, yeah. if I go to, because think of it, my da- my dad and all his brothers did the same thing. They went to jail. They they were in a gang and they all got did, did they, they all get died. murdered were they murdered so so yeah. one's in prison for I think it's somewhere around thirty years uh. another one uh, got out of prison um, recently and then my dad's dead and his other brother's dead and my dad's cousin's in prison for life so they all uh, so it's one way or the other it's yeah. prison or dead yeah so that but that's what gang activity leads yeah. to right yeah it's either you change and you forsake it you go to prison or you end up dying from it and that's where I, uh, I, I, as a kid, like I made the decision that if I do this, my brothers will follow me. Like it's inevitable oh, yeah. that they'll follow. So me. your decision takes three lives. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was not, I didn't want that for my brothers, yeah. you know, and my mom didn't want that for me. And that's why my mom lived a good example because she knew that I, I would look up to her and eventually I'd get it, you know? So cool. Thank heavens for moms, huh? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Dads, yeah. we mess it up a little bit. <laughs> but the moms get it. Um, here's what I want to do, Bubba. Can you stick with us another, like, 15 minutes yeah. or so? Yeah. Well, actually, probably 20 minutes. We're going to take a break. We have to end the hour, and then um, we'll come back in the nine hour and start back up here with uh, Bubba Palmore. Again, what a cool story. And, and not... He didn't go to boot camp, and he wasn't trained up to do all of this. Some of this is just finding it out as a boy, watching mom, for heaven's sakes. By the way, watching the results of your dad and your uncle's uh, death and going to prison. I mean, folks, it's intuitive. We can change and get healthy if we kind of let it in. Let the light in. It'll change our lives. More with Bubba Palmore and the Matt Townsend Show up after this break. You're listening to Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.
Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hour number three of the Matt Townsend Show. Six after the hour. Wow. What a great guest we have and what a great show we have got to put together for you. Really cool day. In fact, um, we we try our best on this show to not just talk about the news, but we also want to inspire you. We want you to know that there is hope in the world, that there's good in the world. And I think we found some seriously awesome goodness. Um, Bubba Palmore is his name. And before, in the last hour, we were talking to Bubba. Bubba is a kid that was literally born into a gang. Dad, uncles, cousins, everybody were, were in the gang. And raised in the gang. Mom never really quite liked it. Awesome example, though. Exercised, took care of herself, worked hard got a degree, dad killed, shot, I guess shot in a gang fight. Yeah, yeah. Um, Uncles went to prison. Another uncle died as well. Yeah. Cousins, a lot of family in prison. Bubba, though, now 21. Yeah. 21 years old, not in a gang, but changed his life. And and basically, he tells the story about, was it about, so nine, you started to, get in trouble you really wanted to hurt somebody bad yeah they crossed the line they were in your face yeah and you decided we're going to i've either got to kill this guy or i got to change my life yeah yeah i mean i think uh after i was getting ready to 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 kill him um and we were caught uh we went to the principal's office and i remember sitting across from the guy who was going to do this for me yeah and i still was like hard in my heart like i was like man like why like why did she tell on us like yeah. and and I wasn't even thinking about the fact that I I was I, you like you could have messed up your life forever. Yeah. And so this kid starts crying and I was like why are you crying like we don't cry like and uh he just said I don't want to talk to you anymore. I don't want to be around you like mm. what you were going to have me do was really bad and now I'm probably going to go to juvenile hall. I'm getting expelled and I can't come back to the school district anymore. Start naming off these things and I started to realize, like, I started to realize what was really happening. Yeah. Because I was, like, in this false sense of reality where I thought, I'm going to kill this guy just like in the movies, just like I hear the stories from what happened with, you know, my ancestors and, and uh, you know, just like the gang life. Like, I thought, I'm, I'm thinking of, I'm in some movie, yeah. you know, it was, like, exciting to me. It's, and, it's like a script. Yeah. And it wasn't until this, uh, it wasn't until this experience where I started to hit reality and realize, wow, like. I might go to jail forever Man. if I act like this. Yeah. You know? That's crazy. And um, and then your little brothers, and you're thinking, man, I don't want my brothers to turn out like this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my little brothers, everything I did, they would follow. Like, I played football, basketball, ran track. My little brothers did all those things, yeah. you know? And anything that, that I would do, my little brothers thought was cool. And, you know, it was imperative that I that I learned not to be a bad example. And my, my mother and my stepfather— they they told me, you know, you need to be a good example. Mm-hmm. And while it was really difficult for me to get that in my heart, um, eventually I did come to terms with the fact that that was kind of like my calling. I needed to be a good you example. You needed to be the good example. And how did you get out? So how did I get out of How the, did you get out of the game? So, so for me, it's different than it is for most people because most people, they, they are look, they're searching for family. Yeah. 
And most of these people grow up in very difficult environments, mm-hmm. poverty, no parents, and they're just looking for family. And so what happens is they end up finding this group of people that are like some gang, and they end up getting jumped into this gang. Right? Yeah. So there's a difference between being jumped into a gang and being born into a gang. Yeah, you were. It was your bloodline. <laughs> yeah. So like you so own the gang. I didn't search it out. Like yeah. it, it's it's. Uh, my family name is like on this is in this gang, you yeah. know, and um, like in the prison systems, you know, my my last name is in there at, with this gang. It's you know? synonymous with yeah. the gang. Yeah. So it's, it's different for me because with that, though, like I have a choice. That's like the blessing of it. Yeah. Is that people understand that like it's all I saw since I was a little tiny baby. Yeah. And I didn't have like I didn't seek it out. I didn't walk up to someone's house and say, hey, I want to be in a gang. I came out of my like the person who created me was a gang member. Yeah. And, and that and and that is so me getting out of it was a lot. I mean, it was really it was a choice. Really? Yeah. yeah now you're like, I'm yeah, done. Yeah. And the, and the difference is like I. um there weren't any kids my age that were like in the same gang as me. Yeah. Um they were all older than me. So I like was trying to like prove myself yeah. in a way that I was like my uncles and like them, you know, and and uh so me getting out of the gang, it was uh it it it's hard to explain like because it's like family blood, you know? Mm-hmm. So I could I had the option to walk away. Like I had the option to walk away and and they won't hurt me yeah. for doing that because well, your family's I, given so much too. You've for the gang. Yeah. So many deaths. I mean, yeah. Yeah, like like it's different for me. Like if I would have came up and said, "Hey, I want to join this gang and I get jumped in and then I just suddenly say I want to quit now." Then it would be different. They yeah. wouldn't allow that. Right. Whereas since I was born into it, like I had the the choice whereas the gang members they they cared about me and they they if I wanted to live a better life if I wanted to go dance or play football or do something productive yeah. they would support me on that you know That's so cool though so yeah. so you were able to get out and then you just kind of went about your life yeah 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 day to day playing football dancing yeah by the way not to brag but I, I just want you to know too Bubba I'm a dancer. <laughs> Why are you laughing? That is so rude. No, I just laugh at everything. So okay, good. Because um, I am a I'm a pretty wicked dancer. But um, you. But the interesting thing though, then you were raised by a stepdad. Yeah. And your and your mom's continued to be a great example. Your yeah. brothers, you were able to keep clean, kind of yeah. out of the gang. Yeah. But your stepdad didn't always get along with you either. Yeah. So that created tension. Yeah. So there was a big conflict between my stepfather and I growing up. Um, the problem. Well, the thing is, is my uncles that were blood uncles wanted me to be a gang member. Yeah. They wanted that for me. And my stepdad, when he originally came into my life, he didn't want that for me. Um, he didn't want that for me because he he knew like how bad our lives were. Yeah. Because he's thinking, man, these little boys, their father was murdered and all their uncles are gang members and the same thing's going to happen to them. Mm-hmm. So he initially tried to steer me away from the gang activity. Unfortunately, uh, him being so active in gang activity, um, that was more of what played into my actions, right? Oh, interesting, so, yeah. He, so even though he would tell me, like, don't, don't do this, don't do that, I looked up to him as, like, this cool gang member. So I thought, you know, not in front of his face, but when I went to school, I tried to, like, be him, yeah. you know? I looked up to him so much that I wanted to, like, be him. Oh, how weird. So know? he was still creating an example. You can't—he was trying to talk you out, but was still a yeah. ganger. Yeah, and I—and for him, I mean, the thing, the thing about him is, like, he grew up, 
really, really, really rough. Yeah. His dad was murdered as well. Yeah. And his his uh, his dad was never around for him. And his mom, uh, she got sick and didn't take care of him. So he was like homeless at 12 years old. Oh, man. And so he grew up not knowing any better than, than this. So for him to – and he was 21 years old when he – when he got involved in my life as a little boy. So he took on the role as a stepfather. A dad, at 21. Yeah. So he, uh, so it was hard because he was trying to figure out himself mm-hmm. while he was, uh, while, while, while yeah, raising 21 us, you know? being a kid, raising kids while in a gang, in a game, you know? So, so yeah. he had like, but this knowing co- you shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah. But in it. Yeah. Interesting. And, th- and so that was like, what was difficult for me is yeah. that as a kid, your parents can tell you anything. And you're like, what you see is what you'll do because words, they only go so far. It's those actions so that true. really, you know, that's what really stood out to me. Well, I think every parent out there needs to remember that. We can say it, don't do it, but, you know, it's our, it's yeah. our actions that do the talking. Yeah, and like, and, and with my stepdad's actions and my mom's actions, I chose to follow my mom's actions. You see, it's, it's, my, it's not what my mom told me growing up. Right. It's what my mom did, what she does today. She's a really faithful a God-fearing woman, and and that, like that example to me, it's huge. That that's what is it, amazing. Well, and it softened you because, um, kind of to bring it full story to BYU, you then had a friend in high school you played ball with that was LDS, a Mormon. Yeah, yeah. you became close friends. Yeah, then you just learned about the church and you 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 joined the church. Yeah, a gangbanger. Yeah, <laughs> joined. The Utah Mormon White Church. Yeah, yeah. So, How, I mean, honestly, that is in L.A. We're, no, in San Diego. Yeah, that's a weird. Yeah, story. Yeah, it is. And the thing is, a lot of my friends, like I, I had friends that like made so much fun of me, and I bet I had a lot of persecution from a lot of people. Did they not know that you were a past gang member? You could take care of those people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, well, the thing is, a lot of a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I I had a lot of smart like remarks towards I me bet. and uh, more of more than like making fun of me but more like trying to because you know no one would like make fun of me to my face right. but what they would do is talk behind my back about how i was this mormon kid and yeah. i joined this this weird church and how i was like uh i, I just turned away from from who i really right, am you right. know they thought that i really like who i really am is that guy who's getting in fights who yeah. who's doing all that like that's not who i really am Mm-mm. you know and and so i'm I'm so grateful that I found the church because today I know who I really am as opposed to like back then I thought I really like who I was supposed to be was a gang member. Then you then you went on a mission, an LDS mission for the yeah. church. Where did you go? I went to Colorado, Denver South. Holy cow. And yeah. Yeah, and that and that was amazing. How great. That was amazing. And you, you found know? yourself. Yeah, I found myself. There was a, a gang member that I had met that just got out of prison that had tattoos all over his body that I mean, he had been a gang member since he was little, and he's actually like a rival gang member from what— Really? So what I grew up—the kind of gang members I grew up and had the most problems with— he was a he, he was, was he was that full kind fledged of, member of that yeah, gang. Yeah, and so so your enemies. Y- yeah, as a kid, yeah. like he was the type of person that like me and him just wouldn't get along, and I actually ended up baptizing this guy. Holy cow! And his dad was murdered as well, and and like just the change that I saw in him, like the prayers that he would yeah. say, and all the moments of hope. You know, him wanting to stop 
you know, and forsake all the drugs and those kind of things. Like, it was amazing to see the desires you that bet. he had, you know? Well, you're probably the only guy that could have influenced him. Like, who else could top that story? Yeah, and... And, and, and you yep. were there, and you happened to be there, but you happened to be there because you followed these these promptings along the way. Yeah. And it changed you. We only have about one minute, and so will you just just tell us, I mean, I know in the end this also made it so you could go back to your stepdad. He respects you more than ever. Your yeah. mom loves you more than ever. Yeah. Um, what, what do all of us as parents out there need to know? And what do just the average person in the country need to know about helping kids change? Yeah, so the big thing with helping kids change is example. I, I read a quote on my mission that talked about there's three ways to lead. Example, example, example. Like, words only go so far, and if those words are backed up by actions, I mean, that pierces the heart of a young kid. And growing up, everything that I've become is through example. Yeah. And I guess the, the big thing that I would, like, say to parents um, is that God is the one who changed my life. God's, God helped me so much, and I know that many parents don't know what their kids are going through, and, and I believe that there's only one, like, there's only one true source that knows how, totally. to, how to fix what, what the kids are going through, and, and I think it's imperative that the parents learn to rely on God to, to help those children, because that's what my mom did for me, you know? And, and, and then you saw it in her heart. You knew she was a God-fearing woman, and it created the change. Yeah. And uh, Bubba, just give them quickly your blog that they can go find you. Yeah, so my blog is Bubba Palmore at blogspot.com. Palmore, P-A-L-M-O-R-E. Yes. Bubba Palmore at blogspot.com. Also, you can go to Mormon ads. Are you in a Mormon yeah. ad? Yeah. So there was a, there was a, there's a TV series um, coming out for the Mormon channel. It's called His Grace, and it's featuring my life story in a, so cool. a five-minute video. Bubba, proud of you, brother. That's so cool. <laughs> Seriously, you're changing lives. Man, I just want to just adopt you and have. I, I want to go dance with you and show you some of my moves. Maybe we'll do that later. Uh, we're going to take a break, my friends. Great stuff. Man, look, it just takes the light of one individual to change a lot of people. Good stuff. We'll take a break. And when we come back, more uh, interesting research, more interesting lessons to learn from uh, from some of our guests, as well as more headlines. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man! Bubba Palmore, my new hero. That's by the way, Bubba's my hero of the day. What a stud. I want to be Bubba when I grow up. Hey, uh, this, this kind of fits perfectly. Our next guest does. Um, Vanessa Loader is her name. And, you know, failure is a part of life. Every kid who's ever tried to jump off the roof using a grocery bag as a parachute can tell you that. Every adolescent who's ever been rejected in the dating game can confirm failure's part of life. And when it comes down to it, the reality is, We've got to learn to take the lessons of failure and, and use them to our advantage. Joining us right now is uh, Vanessa Loader, and she's going to give us her five steps to overcoming the fear of failure. Vanessa, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. And following up, did you hear any of that interview from Bubba? 
Or, I did not. Right before. Oh, you missed it. A gang, a gang member gone clean. And uh, oh, he, he did. Wow. He did exactly what I think you're about to teach us. So talk, talk to us about how we take, you know, the, the beat down of life and turn it into something healthy. Yes. So fear is something that, you know, first of all, people need to realize we all face. Um, and so many people, when they, they get beat down by life, they can get very discouraged. And one of the most important things is to practice self-compassion and to recognize that you're not alone. Yeah. Other people face similar obstacles. They've had difficult circumstances. And to just tap into that, it's called common humanity in the self-compassion world, to tap into the fact that, you know, other people have suffered too, and you're not the only one to feel this way. Right. I mean, and, and, and that kind of connects you to the greater world, right? I mean, this is a universal experience. Exactly, exactly. And because what happens is a lot of us, when we, we fail, we feel very isolated, and you get this story in your mind that you're the only person that's ever felt this way, and therefore you are, you're not enough, and you're, you're, I'm a failure, and I, right. I suck, or whatever the words are that go through your own mind. And so when you can you know, start to tap into that common human experience and recognize that other people, too, have been through this, you start to feel less isolated, and that immediately helps you to feel a little bit better. That's so great. And it doesn't matter the failure, you know, whether big or small, we've all done, we've all failed. Yeah. It's not a new thing. <laughs> Thank heavens. Right. That's good. Yeah, in fact, yes. what's funny is most of us have not even failed in a new way. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Not only what are we all kind of universally failures, none of us have actually done it uniquely. Yeah, yeah. No, we're, yeah, we're just repeating failures. That's true. Well, so what are some of the steps that you, you teach to help us overcome the fear of failure? So the first one is to reframe your goals. And so this is really important. A lot of people, you know, they'll anchor to something very specific. I need to, you know, earn this much money or I'm a failure. I need to do this exact thing or I'm a failure. And instead, if you can expand your goal to include learning something new, then you'll never technically fail because there's always something to be learned. So instead of saying, I need to make this much money, you could say, you know, my goal is to, yes, make a certain amount of money, but my real goal is to learn something new about um, how to ask for a raise or about how to apply for a job. Mm. And that way, you're, you're anchoring yourself to the goal of learning something of value. And so you actually literally can't fail because regardless of the outcome, you're bound to learn something. It's so true. I mean, because if you were raised thinking, I, I want to make as much money as my dad. If that's if that's what you feel is success, but you never make as much money as your father, but you end up impacting more lives, you're a major success. Or you end up, you know, having a family and a healthier family than your father may have had. It still doesn't feel like success. So maybe some of that's our the fear is our fear of the failure, and you're just saying then adapt the goal so it's it's you can't lose. Exactly. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, and just notice when you pin yourself in with your goals, right? When it's when it's so yeah. specific, the outcome the outcome has to be exactly X for me to feel like I'm a success. And you're you're sort of setting yourself up for failure in some ways when you do that. Well, I mean, imagine just a, a NFL quarterback that the only sign of success is a Super Bowl win. <laughs> right, right. Not that you've been there five times, but that you have to win, or. Not that you've changed lives, you've maximized your talents, but you were always on teams that were never built to win. 
yeah, you leave yourself kind of hanging there. What's another? What's yeah. another yeah, the tool? Other, oh, the go other ahead. Quick thing I'll say about the goals is when you set something that big and ambitious and that specific, like I, I have to be in a Super Bowl, it can cause what I call being sort of paralyzed by perfection, where the goal is so daunting that you don't even take the first step. And yeah. so, you know, I do a lot of writing. I write for Forbes and Huffington Post and all these outlets now. But in the beginning, when I was first starting to write, I had this this goal that my my first article needed to go viral. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> such an ambitious way. And so I, I didn't write anything for months because I felt so much pressure to write this amazing piece that would go viral. And I was going to be a failure if it didn't. That's so, so true. Doing this, that black and white thinking, being very binary, can really lead you to actually not even take the first step. So that's why, yeah, you know, reframing your goals is, is the best way to start to reframe failure. That's so true. Um, give, give us, we've got about 30 seconds before a break, and then we'll come back and do more. What's, what's a quick one? What's another quick quick tool? Is to uncover your story. So when you take failure personally, you're always associating a failure with a bigger story about yourself, meaning you're taking the failure to mean I am not good enough or I will never be as successful as my dad or my team is awful. So whenever you're upset about a specific failure, ask yourself, hmm, what is the belief I have about this situation? And see if you can uncover the story that you're telling yourself about that failure. Mm. That's so good. I mean, really, because in the end, we're weaving these stories our entire life, and the bigger picture is going to be critical because that also, I guess, expands your ability to to adapt, to change, to tweak the goals. Exactly. Yeah. And so uncovering your story allows you to shift it and be like, oh, and recognize, wow, that's that's ridiculous. Yeah. That's, you know, that story's not true at all. Yeah. I've just, yeah, I've just caged myself into a story. Um, We are talking with Vanessa Loader, uh, who is the co-founder of the Mindfulness-Based Achievement, uh, which is a uh, corporation dedicated to helping stressed out and busy overachievers. You can go to her website, mindfulnessbasedachievement.com. We're going to take a break and come back and continue discussing more tools to help us overcome the fear of failure. Up next, right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. The third hour of the Matt Townsend Show. It's 32 minutes past the the hour, and uh, we are on the phone with Vanessa Loader, who uh, is basically trying her very best to teach us about how to face the fear of failure. So many of us are afraid to make mistakes, to fail, and yet at the end of day, failure is about learning. It's the process of growing and learning and trying to figure out how you're going to impact the world. Vanessa um, has a a wonderful website I'd suggest you go check out, mindfulnessbasedachievement.com. She's the co-founder of the Mindfulness-Based Achievement um, Corporation and is basically here to teach us some tools, a few ideas for how we can go about reevaluating our fear and overcoming it. Vanessa, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Great to have you. What are some more things that we need to be doing to overcome the fear of failure? Yeah, good question. So one of the things that we teach a lot in our mindfulness-based achievement programs is 
the power of visualization. And, you know, so many athletes understand this, the mind-body connection. There was one study with NBA basketball, or not NBA, but with basketball players that showed that one hour of visualization was the equivalent of up to seven hours of physical activity. Hmm. So and you see Olympic athletes sitting there at the top of the mountain before they're going to go, you know, ski down and race, and they're visualizing the chorus, right? Lindsay Vaughn's famous for moving her hands through the air and seeing right. all the turns. So, but one of the things that a lot of people don't know is that you actually also need to visualize obstacles when you're thinking about wanting to overcome failure and a fear of failure. So no, no, why? You think you, well, I guess, why? You'd need to not have that in your head, everyone would be out there thinking. I don't want to think of the problems. I know, right? And I was actually teaching a lot of positive thinking and visualization techniques before I came across this research, and I had the exact same reaction. I don't want to teach people to visualize failure. That seems so wrong. But here's the thing. There was a 2011 study that asked two groups of college students to write about what lay in store for the coming week. One group was asked to imagine that the week would be great. The other group was just asked to write down any thoughts about the week that came to mind. And the students who were asked to imagine the week would be great, they actually reported feeling less energized. And they they went on to accomplish less during the week than the control group. So what, we're, what research is now showing is that positive thinking alone is not enough. you got to be and, real, right? I mean, yeah. 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 And so that you, need, you need to sort of balance the positive thinking with actually visualizing the obstacles and struggles you, are, you will encounter and then see yourself overcoming those obstacles yeah. and struggles. Yeah, cool. And dodging it and maneuvering and finding creative ways around the obstacles. That's powerful. Yeah. So you're basically cultivating resilience through visualization. That's it. I mean, and again, I mean, it's it seems obvious if our brains that powerful that one hour of visualization is equal to seven hours of physical activity. Then if you also visualize the obstacles and saw yourself getting around them, you would it's just like training. You'll be unstoppable. Yeah, Yeah, because most of us, we hit that obstacle and we've just been visualizing success and we fall apart. We think this isn't what I planned. This isn't how I thought it was going to look. Where did this come? Yeah. Yeah, we're not prepared. So. So you guys, you in your mindfulness-based program, achievement program, you're teaching visualization activities and exercises. You're teaching people how to reframe their goals, how to kind of avoid analysis of the paralysis of analysis. Yes, exactly. We do a lot of that. Give us another one. We we have about five minutes. What's another tool we should be using that helps us to overcome the fear of failure? So one of my favorite tools is to ask yourself these three powerful questions. Cool. One, what did I learn from this situation? Two, how can I grow as a person from this experience? And three, what are three positive things about this situation? Hmm. What, are the question, what do those questions do? What did I learn? What can I, how can I grow? How can I grow? And three and things. What are three things? Yeah. Well, what it does is it starts to reframe your mind. So basically what happens when we fail or even fear failure is we actually, in terms of our brain, we go back into the reptilian or the critter brain and we're in our fight or flight response. Right. And what you want to do is get back into your prefrontal cortex. And these questions, when you start to think about what did I learn, how can I grow as a person from this experience, it actually brings you back into your more advanced human brain and it gets you into a more creative, problem-solving mode of being. Hmm. And then you, and then, the, then what? Now that I'm in that creative brain, I mean, it's interesting because every one of these are positive. My learning, my growing, and positive things I can see from this situation. I mean, mm-hmm. in the end, it's probably most of our fears aren't even really fearful. 
I mean, there's not negative. If you go to the positive, like you're asking us to do in the questions, we're going to take away positives from the experience. Yes, exactly. And what happens is you actually come up with completely new opportunities that you would not have seen when you're focused on it being a failure. So, for example, you know, I support a lot of like entrepreneurs um, here in Silicon Valley and you know, someone at a startup, let's say they lose their biggest customer that's 80% of their revenue, and they immediately go into, this is a huge failure. How could I not view this as a failure? It's 80% of my revenue. Like, the business is doomed. Yeah. And when you're, well, when you have them reframe with these three questions, all of a sudden, and, and to be honest, myself included, when you first start to do this and you're in the failure, you'll have a lot of resistance. You'll be like, ah, I don't want to think of three. Yeah. There's nothing positive. Let me just wallow in this. That's right. Yeah. And so it's totally normal if at first you get really annoyed and you don't want to answer the question. <laughs> Sometimes you might need to, like, go on a run and take a break before you do it sure. um, or come back to it. So when you can get to that place, for example, you know, this one client would say, oh, well, you actually, now that I think about it, losing my biggest customer gives me more time to focus on my smaller clients and sell more to them. Mm-hmm. And I'll also have more time to chase after that other potential new client that I didn't have time for before. Powerful. Plus, you're exercising this gift, right? You're this skill. So the more you practice it, even though it's hard at first, and it might just be hard in the emotion of the moment, right? Because you're you're filled with chemistry because you just, you know, embarrassed yourself in front of a thousand people um, (laughs) or whatever the failure was. Uh, But I guess let that emotion pass, then go learn, and you're really just conditioning your brain to handle difficulty, and you get better and better at it. Exactly. Yeah, and I think so many people, you know, we're taught, especially athletes, you know, to exercise our body and to do reps and to strengthen our muscles. And no one's teaching people how to strengthen their brains and yeah. how to be resilient in a mental and emotional way. And so that's what we really, you know, teach in our curriculum is tools like this. We, we have about a minute, Vanessa, but you keep using the word resiliency or resilient. Talk about that and, and just let us know why is it so important and, and what's the, what I always call it the one thing. What's the one thing we all should be remembering when it comes to fear and our resiliency? Mm, that's a good question. So resiliency, I mean, I think it's important because I actually think it leads to greater happiness and fulfillment the more resilient we are um, yeah. to fear and to failure and, and to shame, really, which is what I believe is underneath fear and failure. Mm-hmm. And so cultivating shame resilience is one of the skills that I found can create so much greater happiness for people. And it helps them take these big leaps of faith and take risks and take chances and feel safe doing it. And yeah, um, and, I'll keep going. Oh, oh that's, no, that's it. Yeah. I mean, it is. And it's I like, too, that you're, you're taking kind of the skills approach because we've got to start working on our brain. In the end, this world's changing faster than ever before. I don't get a feeling it's going to slow down. We even have robots now. And yeah. um, so this isn't going to slow down yet. Your resiliency can actually go up. That's something that, as everything else in our life tends to slow with age, our resiliency might even be able to go up. Um, it's powerful. Well, we appreciate yeah. you so much, Vanessa, and appreciate the work you're doing. Everybody, go to her website, mindfulnessbasedachievement.com. Also, go check out her blogs there. I mean, she's got a lot of information and free resources uh, on those websites to, uh, to help us become even more mindful. And really overcoming fear. I mean, you don't think I'm afraid to do a radio show every day? Are you kidding me? I'm on the edge of my seat. Scary. We're going to take a break. When we come back, BYU Sports Nation, we're going to go visit Studio 2B. Is it 2B? Just B. We're in Studio 2. 
And we're going to talk to the boys from Sports Nation. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Final segment of the Matt Townsend Show, where we go to Wonderland <laughs> down in Studio B, BYU Sports Nation. Our good friends down there, Spencer Linton, Jerem Jordan. How are you, boys? Indeed. I always call I always it's, call you boys, and I feel bad because you're really okay. men. No, we're, we're the we're some of the youngest peeps in the uh, building here. We're By in the our way, thirties though. I think people think we're in our twenties. No, you're not, and you're ruggedly good looking. Thank you very much. Ruggedly. It right, is I'll Wonderland, though, isn't it, down in Studio well, B? Well, it is, as I'm looking down upon you through <laughs> my, through my BYU Sports Ramiotum. Nation cam, I noticed that you have a lot of paraphernalia around your desk that um, we don't get up here in Radioland. Well, it's a visual medium, uh, what we're doing down here. Oh, and so it's a great to hide, point. <laughs> it's a really good point. To hide... Uh, I don't know. Maybe our lack of good looks. We need people to look at other <laughs> Think things, for yourself, right, bro? You're a good-looking dude. Come on. I think no, you're both we, great looking. Our set is fun. The, the initial concept of this show was Mike and Mike ask, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, a simulcast on ESPN. Uh, our senior coordinating producer Michael Miner helped work on that show, so we had great ideas having worked on that show. And so instead, they have bobbleheads. Yeah. But we've got all sorts of stuff uh, up on this desk, ranging from helmets to uh, sport. You know. Footballs, basketballs, baseballs, lacrosse, gloves and sticks and the Y Award and stuff we brought back from different places we've gone to traveling. We've got a multicolored monkey. We've got a <laughs> That came potato. from Berkeley, Berkeley, California. We've got a piece of, of cheese. We've That's got a little Berkeley guitar. Monkey. We added some stuff this week, actually. Track and field. Shaquille Walker of uh, Track came in and brought us some stuff. There's a yellow hat that looks like something from Curious George. I saw BYU that. Track official. I mean, it's crazy now. You know, Plus the blue goggles. You know what's funny is you guys, you framed your show kind of after Mike and Mike. Um, we framed my show after the Westminster Dog Show. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Which is kind of offensive. Hey, I had a really cool uh, stat on my show today that I want to ask you about. Okay. A stat of the day? A stat of the day. Yeah, apparently, according to a study, uh, one hour of visualization is equal to seven hours of physical activity. Interesting. So I want to know, how many hours visualizing your show do you spend every day? Visualizing the mm-hmm. show? Yeah. Actually visualizing? Probably yeah. not much, yeah. but outlining. I mean, we show up two and a half hours before No, the I know. Show uh, I share an office that shares your meeting room wall. <laughs> can, you hear, can you hear us? I know where I, this is going. We I act like everything. no one can hear us. No, I, no, I can hear you, but it is kind of nice about 7.30 in the morning because it keeps me wide awake. Aren't you on the air at 7? Well, yeah, I used to not be. Just I think we I should apologize for all of those other mornings that you weren't on the air. I know. We're, known as, we're known as the loudest people in the building. And we share an office that uh, is next to the Studio C yes. oh. area. So sometimes we'll, uh, it's like, it's, did someone just get murdered? Yes, it's payback. Because there are some crazy noises <laughs> coming That's out of the room cool, as they though. brainstorm and rehearse. Hey, what's on your show today? Well, the energy was Huge. high this morning Huge because uh, we have Jimmer Fredette <gasps> on the show. Wow. Yeah, talking about Tyler Haas chasing down his all-time scoring record Big in all time. things BYU basketball. So, uh, yeah, bringing him in from 
The Pelican State, Louisiana. Sheesh. Plus ESPN's Roxy Bernstein. He'll do the play-by-play on tonight's regular season home finale for BYU Hoops. Uh, BYU and San Diego. Big game tonight. Tyler Haas only needs 35 points to pass Jimmer Fredette. Could happen tonight. Do you think? If you not, think? next week. Tonight's tonight. We do have the Matt Townsend effect. So let's. I'll send out those vibes. And I'll go home tonight, and I will visualize him making 36 <laughs> points. Now, you're aware of the BYU Sports Nation karma, right, Matt? Yeah. So the Matt Townsend effect plus the BYU <gasps> Sports Nation karma? That's a big deal. Uh, and no if we fail. all go visualize, it'll make such a difference. <laughs> Visualization, like, I, I think uh, there's some serious, a serious nature to that. There's what's called mental reps for BYU football. So if a guy's hurt, he'll be on the sideline and he'll... It'll participate mentally in that drill, which seems kind of silly, but I think there's no. some value there. I think there's – see, this is the stuff, guys, that you don't learn on any other station. Mike and Mike, they're not talking about this. They're not you talking not. about karma and visualization no. and the Matt Townsend effect. No, they're not. Are you kidding me? And they – who cares if you have a bobblehead if you don't have content? <laughs> that is true. Sports content is what we need. You guys are the best. Hey, you've got all the content you need. Have a great show today. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. We'll keep watching. Good stuff. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. They're the real deal. I am frustrated that they have all of the the, the toys and the give, and the hats and the balls. And all I've got to look at in front of me is a little bucket full of pens, a stress ball, and somebody's drink from about a week ago. Oh, and James. You look great, though, James. Oh, thank you. He's got a glow to him. Don't you think he looks different? Yeah. Just a little bit of an update. Uh, some of you who weren't here for the morning hour, the 7 a.m. hour, um, you may have missed the news. Uh, James is engaged. Yep. He done took <laughs> that lady, and he knee, you knelt down in front of her, and you gave her a ring. I liked it, so I put a ring on it. You loved it. Yep. And she said? Yes. Okay, that was... Last night. Where is she today right now in the third hour of the show? Uh, She says, so yes. So yes. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Really cool. It's pretty great. So We're proud of you. Yeah, it's different. Holding your hand has a ring. Like it feels a little something there. And I'm like, what is that? Oh, yeah. You know what? That ring will be poking in your hand for the rest of your life. (laughs) It's kind of a neat deal. It's good stuff. Hey, um. By the way, one of the things that we try to do on the show, we don't always do it intentionally, but we have a really strong habit of getting a lot of our staff married. And I'm not, I don't know, I'm looking, Terry's like, well, I'm already I'm, married. I'm married. What do you want? <laughs> yeah, so we're not going to get you married again. I already Terry. arrived pre married. We're not so. that kind of show. But you are, but James is now engaged. We've yep. had many others from the past get engaged. In fact, Mike Pond, we even did a whole. Hey, who wants to marry Mike? Yep. I and, like you, And Mikey. we had like 200 people, you know, sign up to go on a date with Mike. And who knows who – he's probably going to get married. He's very next, close. Yeah. So, you know, that's I wouldn't be the surprised Matt Townsend if he got effect. engaged in the next week. Really? Maybe. Wow. This is big time. And, and one of our new producers. I'm not going to name names. <laughs> Kaylee, maybe? She's making inroads in that She's direction. She's making inroads. Not towards marriage, no. by all means. Which I think is great because but she'll at, quit hitting at, on all the guests. At the pace that yeah. she's moving. She's fantastic. It's like two days. It's just really uh, amplified. Uh-huh. We got a, so great, we'll we got a great team. And I think, again, some of it is just the fact that when you're a relationship expert, I just send out a vibe. It's that Matt Townsend effect. <laughs> yeah. That's, sports, that's what it is. Sports and marriage. Sports and marriage. They sports go hand in hand like a... 
baby in a baby carriage. I was trying to see where you were going. I don't know where that goes. Um, Any more news headlines we need to worry about as we're wrapping up the show? Lent started yesterday. Yes. Have you ever given up something for Lent? I, I give up something every week. Well... But I never, mean, I don't know that I've like ever done it for Lent. It's like 40 days, right? Yeah, yeah no, I haven't done it that's, for Lent. That, that's a commitment. I mean, that's, yeah. It says here, um, according to a study, 88% of people polled will give up some kind of food for Lent. Really? Well, you can give up food for 40 days. Right. Well, you give up food, it's like pizza. I'm not going to eat pizza for 40 days. I can manage. I'm Okay, I will give up spinach for 40 days. Right. Asparagus. That's a sacrifice. Eggplant. Yeah. Uh, Broccoli. Uh, Eggplant. It says the Washington Post compiled a list based on Twitter mentions, so yeah. it's highly accurate. It's off Twitter. And uh, it, people will give up in this order. School, because they're joking, right? Sure. I'll give up school. No problem. And then it goes uh, chocolate. They'll give up Twitter. Swearing, alcohol, soda, social networking, sweets, fast food, homework, and Lent. People will give up Lent for Lent. People can't. You can't give up Lent for Lent. <laughs> That's what they're saying. They're going to give up Lent for Lent. <laughs> That's some pretty good stuff, actually. Also, uh, what else? This one I, I found. John Podesta. Remember mm-hmm. that name? Yeah, John Podesta was he's a White House. Clinton. He's a recently departed White House advisor. Yeah, and he was one of Clinton's favorites too. Back he in the tweeted day. that his greatest regret is that he did not secure the disclosure of the UFO files while he was in the White House. Wow. He's a fan of the X-Files, and he has said and written in the past that he feels that the American people can handle the truth about our contact with extraterrestrials. Ooh, that's strange. Now of the question the is, things. is he just messing with people on Twitter? Yes. Or is he serious? He's messing. The truth is out there. The scary the thing says. is he could be back in a new Clinton administration and get those files. Right. Then we'd have the greatest book release Political book release in the history of political book releases. It needs to be about all the events of Mm -hmm. the UFO visits and the cover-up, the denials, Mm -hmm. and any technology we've pulled from those ships that have crashed. Because you know they crashed. You know we have phasers and photon torpedoes. Yeah. Because why wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I've been to Roswell. I've been to the museum. I have seen debris. From a crashed some pieces of UFO. metal that are unidentified. Yeah, made of some. It was a weather balloon. Come yeah, on. organic. I don't know. It was made from a snail. It's the hardest. Right, the snail teeth from yesterday. The snail teeth from yesterday. <laughs> um, hey, here's a really cool article I read. Um, it's a map of what each state is most thankful for. Did you see this? Yes. This is pretty cool. So uh, on Facebook, we reveal a lot of stuff. And over the summer, researchers at Facebook wanted to see what people are most thankful for. They analyzed the posts that contain the words grateful or thankful, and this is what they found out. The um, number one thing people are most grateful for, guess what? Friends. Number two, family. Three, health. Four, family and friends. Five, job. Six, husband. Seven, children. By the way, wife, not on the list. DVR? Not on the top ten. Ooh. Men, you got to pick up your game, man. That's on you got to say own. you're more grateful for that's your a, wife. That's in my top ten. I used to say it goes fire, wheel, DVR. Greatest <laughs> inventions of mankind. You need to say fire. <laughs> you need to say wife, fire, wheel, DVR. She's not really an invention. Well. Is she? Tell her that. Okay. Uh, children are on the list. The roof over my head. Life and music. Now, here's the thing. State by state, 
fascinating what each state said they're most thankful for. California, guess what you're most thankful for? YouTube. Hmm. <laughs> Seems kind of weird. Uh, uh, Oregon, yoga. Washington State, the ability to love. Vegas, what do you think Vegans are most thankful for? Country music. Really? What? Yep. Country music? That... Back east, they tend to be things like living near a beach, Netflix, Pinterest, autumn, the beach, the ocean. In the south, a lot about God, mercy, forgiveness, salvation. Utah, we're grateful for our Heavenly Father. Mm-hmm. Heavenly Father is also Idaho's. You know, it's just crazy. In the Rust Belt, they're grateful for children, freedom of speech, mother and father-in-laws. Powerful stuff. A lot of stuff to be grateful for. Some of it superficial. Some of it superficial. Not going to say anything, but YouTube? Come on. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's okay. It's great. That was another thing I was thinking about yesterday. Are you on Pinterest? I am. Okay. But I have never once... No, Pen? I have never pinned. I have people that pin for me. Okay. Pinners. Thanks for joining us, folks. Again, hey, we're back here tomorrow. Great show loaded for tomorrow. We are uh, we're gonna rock you and tons of great insight as well. This is the Matt Townsend show. We can't do the show without you. What we're grateful for are you as listeners. Join us again tomorrow. More fun, more insight right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. <laughs>